Hi, everyone, and welcome to Office Hours. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know a little bit more about what we do, just head on over to officehours.global. That's kind of our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. Uh, note, you can also use the QR code, which is over on this side down here somewhere. That'll There it is. And you'll notice at the top it says askofficehours.global. You can actually type that into a, a web browser of any kind, and it'll get you to the same place. That lets you ask questions 24-7. 365. You can put them in the queue there, and then we will move them into the show queue. And for those of you who have been around a long time, you're probably in our Mukana system, which allows not only the additional space to put questions in, but also let you vote on those questions and decide kind of the run a show based on your votes. So that's how the system works. Today in our second hour, we'll begin talking about camera sensors. We often talk about lenses, but the sensors themselves do have a huge impact on the quality of images and other things, depth of field. We'll talk about all of that, how sensors work, why they're different, and what differences you should pay attention to if you're thinking about a camera that has some unusual type of sensor or something like that. That's our second hour. Mitch, what's our first question for our first hour today? Thank you, Bill. Our first question comes to us from Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. What's the ideal way to send a mix-minus feed out of an ATAM Extreme ISO back to a Zoom participant? Should I use a super source and send that out on one of the HDMI outputs? Well, it's good, good question. And Mitchell Hill's going to start us, and then Chris Fenwick's going to take over from there. Mitchell? This is destined to be the uh, most controversial answer of all time. But I've got a, a quick, dirty way, and it's exactly what it is, and then a better, probably a better way. And then Chris will be here. Well, anyhow, it's a whole bunch of stuff. Um, there's a quick way to do it. If you go into your uh, Fairlight audio settings in the ATEM, you can click those little uh, headphone jacks at the bottom uh, that are, I guess, supposed to be solos and create a mix minus. You can't adjust the volume easily, but you could indeed create a mix minus there if you chose to do that, but you would tie up that portion of your uh, ATEM. The other way to do it, I suspect, is uh, using Dante. Dante could create a, uh, a router uh, matrix that would allow you to create that and then send it back into your uh, computer to go out to Zoom. And now the other answer. Just so happens, Chris Fenwick is very passionate about this, and we're going to hear from him now. Chris, take it away. Alexander, don't listen to anything Mitch just said. That's all craziness. Um, here's, here's the thing. By definition, mix minus means that you have to be able to mix it, and you have to be able to mix it separate from your program mix. So, what, so I, you can't do what you want to do. Also, it's important to remember that every output of, a, of an ATEM uh, has the same program mix on it. So you can't, the, the super source idea, although clever, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So um, I think that the, technically, the ideal way to do it is you can't do it. So you're probably going to have to do something else. I would do something with uh, my setup, um, which is a whole nother nightmare. Um, I think, Alexander, if I'm Correct. You're more PC centric, so there's probably some sort of potato product to help you do it. But you're gonna be doing something inside the box, but you can't do a mix minus on an A10. 
It, it does become a complex thing. And for those of you who might not understand this audio terminology, a mix minus is used constantly in broadcasts and other places where essentially I'm speaking into a microphone. The, it's going into a program. Other people are being mixed into it. When I get a, a feedback to myself so I can hear myself, I do not want any delay in that. So if my voice is going out into the main mix and that version of my voice is coming back to me and I'm also monitoring on my headphones directly from my microphone, you get a terrible situation where yourself is delayed and you can't hear things. So it is important to remove the microphone from the send back to me. So each individual participant, everybody here in the grid, is getting sent back to them the show minus themselves so that they can have a clean audio feed and participate in the show without this delay problem. So that is a piece of what is going on here. Um, let's go to Alex. Alex. I think the only question is how many people, too, because if you're talking about just a person, um, it's a little simpler, and Mitch's uh, solution could work for that. Um, but you can't do it for more than one <laughs> because it's your program out. So um, so I think that you, um, uh, you, you'd have to, it would be a pretty simple um because I think that a lot of what Alex does specifically is usually one-on-one, -on -one, one person local or one person remote. Um, and remember that if your your entire program is mixed minus to Zoom automatically, I mean, if you're not, if, you know, it just depends on how you route that back. So, you know, and, and in general, uh, I, I don't use the audio in the ATEM. <laughs> so, so in general, like, like it's like, it's really, uh, you know, really think about whether that makes sense for you or not. It, it is, uh, um, I think that they could make it usable. Um, I just don't think that they have, you know, so. Courtney, you want to chime in? Uh, yeah, if you're on Windows, you know, Windows 11 added this cute little volume mixer and router. It's kind of like, uh, not quite as capable as uh, Hijack, but you have uh, control over your, uh, you know, what your system is using for inputs and output devices, and you can choose amongst the various inputs and outputs there. And you can control what apps are feeding in and where they're feeding. So if you click on Zoom meetings, you can see, you can set what you want for your inputs and what you want for your outputs. You can choose individually on each Zoom stage. The stage is separate from the uh, meeting. So you might be able to go in there and set up a patch uh, and then take down that level uh, mix minus for that particular item uh, in your system. So that may be a way to do it. I'm not sure if it's going to work for your particular situation, but a lot of people forget that that, that uh, stupid little mixer that's built into Windows has been updated and is quite more capable now. Alex, you want to come back in? And on the Mac, on the Mac, I mean, we, we talked about it a little bit, but Sound, SoundDesk and Loopback and, and Audio Hijack are, you know, and you only need Loopback and Audio Hijack or SoundDesk, right, Chris? You don't need you don't need loopback theoretically if you're using SoundDesk. It has the routing in it. Well, if you look at the software interface, you'll see my hand is up, and I'm going to talk after you're done. Well, then go, then go. Chris, so, uh, <laughs> I have because Alex threatened to do a lab on this months ago. I have indeed prepared a quick little thing, and if you just want to rewind this and and uh, play these slides back one at a time. You can probably figure it all out. But um, we could do, it, it, since Alex obviously is afraid of whatever. Uh, I'm afraid of Chris's knowledge. Whatever. <laughs> if somebody is really interested, if a few people are really interested in this, we could do a lab 
uh, contact the system. I don't know how all this back end stuff works. And we'll pick a day <laughs> and we'll do it like at, you know, two in the afternoon or whatever. And I'll go through it. I'll spend as much time as people want, but it's super powerful. And, and are you using record, loopback with Soundesk or just Soundesk? No, loopback and Soundesk. And, okay. and it's, and it's really critical. And, and the reason I'll give you the quickest, the, the quickest, these two slides are important. What you think you want to do is plug all your apps into Soundesk, which really makes sense. Yes, I want a fader for Final Cut, and I want a fader for my browser, and I want a fader for QuickTime, and I want a fader for, you know, that's what you want to do, but you can't do that. The reason you can't do that is the window on the right-hand side. You only get to choose a input to Soundesk, and you only get to choose a output for Soundesk, but I need multiple inputs and multiple outputs. So what you have to do is you have to create an aggregate audio device using loopback. And I have to put all of those things on the left-hand side. All of those apps are patched into my inputs that for a, a virtual thing called SoundDesk input. So this patch bay is what gets my audio into the mixer. And then this patch bay on the right-hand side is what gets my audio out of the mixer. So you really do kind of need to have loop back to create those aggregate devices. Well described and well explained. So hopefully, uh, Alexander, this helps you. If you're on PC, you may not have access to those, but you can at least get the signal flow idea. And hopefully there will be tools in your software to enable you to do exactly the same thing. Thanks for the question. Let's move on to the next one. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Considering an M2 Mac Studio for Zoom ISO support, how many 1080p NDI feeds are safe to expect with an M2 Mac? Alex. Uh, I, would, I would say eight. Um, you know, so I think I, there are some stats on the liminal site um, on the actual load. Um, and the M2 Macs, you know, the, there's some overhead with NDI um, that's a little higher than SDI, and and, and so so you you are going to pay a little bit more of a price on the on the NDI. I do think you might be able to get up to um, sixteen um, uh, outputs, but I wouldn't do that. So so I think that you you want to look at probably eight outputs should should work fine out of an M2 Max uh, from uh, from one Mac Mini uh, M2. And I've been surprised lately that the laptops, the Mac Pros that have M2 Max chips have been relatively inexpensive lately. I would have thought that the Max, which is the step up from the main processor, would have kept things at a premium. But I'm seeing pretty substantial discounts on them now. I wonder if that means that the new models are coming out. Hard to say. You never know. Let's go to the next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado has a question. I've got slides from the 70s taken with a film camera. Can I scan them with a Promax 15 laying, laying on Elgato Mini Light and adjusting the color temperature for film type? Uh, Chris Fenwick. You could, Jack, but don't. Uh, I tried doing, I tried going down this path. Uh, I've found a bunch of my dad's old slides when I moved into my mom's house here. Uh, don't do it. Uh, from a myriad of problems. What I will recommend is um, this little gizmo. It's a little Kodak slide projector. Look at Alex or somebody's going to say, oh, no, what you need is a so-and-so drum scanner, blah, 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 you know, end of the world, you know, archival That's print, exactly whatever. what I was going to say is a drum yeah. scanner. <laughs> so forget that madness that he's going to cost you $10,000. This thing is like a buck and a half. It's like maybe 80. Here, hold on. It's uh it's 180 bucks, okay? And it works like a charm, and it does pretty good. You're talking about your old family slides from the 70s. Uh, you stick a... It's stupid simple. 
get this thing. And, and don't, Alex. whatever you do, don't listen to Alex. It'll cost you too much money. Whoa, contentious panel today. Alex, take us uh, away. The Epson, the Epson, Epson line of, of scanners is pretty good, and they range from about $99 to about $1,200. You just got to decide how much pain you're willing to take, you know, as far as how much you pay for it. I have the $1,200 one. It's great. Um, and you can scan slides. So it's 6,400 DPI. But um, for 100 bucks, you can get a 4,800 DPI. Um, you know, $100 Epson is, at the, and this is a flatbed scanner um, and not a drum scanner, just as, as Chris was like, no one uses drum scanners anymore, just in case you're wondering. So anyway, so the, uh, I mean, not even people who want the highest quality, there's no, the, the, the flatbeds went way past that. But the, um, the yeah, 4,800 DPI optical resolution is really good. It's $99. Um, and, uh, and so take a look at those. Um, they are, uh, I, would, I would consider 4,800 DPI the minimum just because you really, if you're going to do archive slides, you want to, or archive scans, you want to do this once. You know, and so so really think about what it what it takes to do that. If you're you know if you're not willing to spend ninety nine dollars and send it out to a service or something, but but you know I I wouldn't go through the trouble of scanning stuff with phones and other things when you can just get a scanner for not very much money and it'll do a great job. Courtney, I would go even cheaper. Uh, the the iPhone uh, doesn't. I don't think it has a lens that was fo- macro focusing close enough without an adapter putting on it to focus to get full frame on a thirty five millimeter slide. What you might go do is go to the local strif- thrift store or eBay and pick you up a vintage carousel custom slide projector. Stick those slides in there, project it on a white card that's you know about. 24 by 36, and then use your phone to shoot them, uh, you know, set it up <laughs> and shoot them, and you'll have them all in your phone, you'll have them in all of mm-hmm. your your phone app, and be able to share them with everybody instantly uh, after you do that show. Plus, you can add narration as you click through the slides. And here's the time we went to Yosemite. <laughs> there video. you go. Well, that a Jack, you have a variety <laughs> of uh, approaches here. But, you know, the good news is that it looks like there's ways to do it without spending a tremendous amount the, of money. But, by the way, at, at, at about in the range of about $500 is where you get an incredible scanner. You know, five or $600 is an incredible scanner that will, um, you know, and, and the reason I'm, I'm studying this a lot, and I have one, um, but I'm also looking at getting another one for Pennsylvania my plan is really to go out and scan all of like my extended family's photos. And again, what I value is time. <laughs> like, you know, so I want to do this once. I want it to be really high quality. And I want to have an archive level photo. Not one on my phone, not one I'm emailing people to. But an arch- if you have all these old photos from the 70s, you know, it's... It won't last forever. And getting them onto something and then putting them... And remember, there's a three, two, one, which is... Three locations, two multi, two places that aren't the same physical locations, and one in the cloud. And if you do a three, two, one with your family photos, um, and you scan them really well at the very beginning, everyone will be happy with you a hundred years from now. <laughs> and, print, and then, and then the next step is printing them out. Uh, I'm I'm slowly getting ready to print them all out too, so that there's a like I'll basically print ten copies of each one of them because it's just you know there's photos that. We should really, I mean, it's it's really worth talking about because there's photos that that my family has that are 100 years old, you know, now, and and they lasted on paper and we're going to lose everything, you know, from the digital world and the ones that are just sitting around, um, 
you know, around on the, on the ground, you know, or in your garage are going to slowly get mold and then you're going to really wish you had scanned them before that happened. Chris, you want to do a quick pop in? There's one last thing about what Alex was saying. Uh, we mentioned this last week. Uh, I call this the digital dark ages. And um, the thing that's even more upsetting is my family, uh, they capture most of their memories in Snapchat. They're gone in 24 hours. Oh, did you see my snaps from I mean, the show? No. Can you show them? No, they're gone. Like the mindset that thinks that that's okay is mind-boggling. I, I have to say, there's there's very few things that I enjoy more than my my phone. My the on the on the iPhone, it's just every when you open up the phone, every once in a while, it just shows you here's some photos from your past, and I've taken so many on my phone that I just get these amazing photos of my kids, of my wife, of, you know, from 10 years ago, of, you know, eight years ago, of 15 years ago. You know, it's not 15, not quite, but close, yeah. Do you ever, do you ever watch those little memory reels? Oh, yeah, they're good. Apple. Oh, they're really nice. I have a great story to tell you about memories that I can't tell you on the air someday. Okay. Yeah. All right, so that's my cue to move us along to the next question. <laughs> yeah, we have an incoming QR code uh, question here. And you should enjoy it from Matt L. in Oakland. When bringing a line into an ATEM Mini Pro ISO from a soundboard, we get a 60-cycle hum. The line has been tested clean before plugging into ATEM. Try to light line mic levels, DI box, and more. Thoughts, please. Ground loop time. Mitchell, start us out. And you just called it, Bill. That's exactly what's happening. It is that the uh, ATEM is becoming a better ground than the ground that the uh, the soundboard has. I don't know what kind of soundboard you have. There, there are good ones and there are bad ones. The problem might be uh, in the electrical isolation between the two. What I would try first would be an isolation transformer uh, between it and a very short uh, 3.5 uh, connection, because that's what I'm assuming you're using. And uh, that electrically isolates the uh, the two devices. As long as there's any kind of uh, potential between the, uh, uh, the ATAM and the sound card, you're going to get some kind of a ground hum because it's not a balanced line. Uh, converting it to balance might help, but you need to have an electrical isolation. That's why I suggest a transformer. Alex. Or you can go the other way, not have electrical isolation. Go over to where the soundboard is, run a, run a power cable to the outlet that the soundboard is plugged into, run it back to where you're at, and then plug your ATEM into that. What's happening is they're not sharing the same ground, so they don't have a common ground. And because of that, it's finding ground through your, through your system. And so what you need to do is, is you, you need them, they need to share the same ground. That doesn't mean they have to be on the same circuit, but they do, that those circuits have to share the same ground, and they're not. You know, and so if they're not, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go through your, your audio cables and that's what you're hearing there. And you hear this on like 30% of every press event that you ever see is so, because they have a bunch of power and they have a bunch of things and people are plugging everything in and people are not very uh, organized. So, um, so anyway, so that's what you need to solve. There is another way to solve it that we've done. It depends on how long the event is and what we're doing is we use batteries. So we'll use a battery with a, with a 12 volt tap. You know, so we have we've got all these little batteries with twelve volts. You can run that out of the battery and into your into your ATEM, and it'll go away as well because there's no there's not no ground because it's not it's not. And I know 
people who use car batteries and they run their entire system on it so they don't have, because they're really, they don't want to ever think about hum because they have to go from one bar to another to do these sound reinforcements, like just the records for bands. And they, they said it's just easier just to be all on battery. You know, like we just have, you know, and it takes a little bit to push it up the hill, but, but then, we're, then we're in and we don't have to think about it. So, so anyway, but that's what's happening there. Courtney? Yeah, I'm with Alex. Get everything that's plugged into that ATEM, and I mean everything, plugged into a common uh, outlet strip. I found this outlet strip online. It's really cool because it allows for uh, six. It has them on the side, and it also has uh, several 5-volt uh, uh, USB power and USB-C power output on it. And it's handy to travel with. And that way you can plug everything, including all the wall warts, into the same power strip. It could be also a bad power supply since the ATEM runs off of DC that comes out of a wall wart. It could be, you know, filter capacitors are failing in that thing, so it's letting a little AC leak in there. So you might try switching out the power supplies for your ATEM if that's a problem. And also work at line level input on the ATEM uh, instead of mic level. Uh, you'll have less likely a chance of amplifying that AC hum uh, coming in over the ungrounded, over the unbalanced inputs. Jeffrey Powers. You can also think about uh, cleaning out that uh, 3.5 port. I mean, that's that's a that's a long shot, but uh, there's always a chance that something in there is uh, causing extra extra problem. But I was going to suggest what Courtney did: test your uh, test your well wart, make sure that it's uh, it's properly sending juice. Fenwick, let's go to the ground the ground loop problem. The ATEM itself isn't grounded. I mean, its power cable is just, you know, positive and negative. Um, so can you get a ground loop if something does, isn't, doesn't oh, have yeah. a ground? Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it can come in what on any of the cameras, anything that's plugged into the HDMI inputs that is grounded somewhere yeah. else and has an AC power supply. Mitchell Hill. And uh, Matt, just a final thought here. The problem seems to be pointing at the sound card or the computer it's plugged into. Um, I would consider a different sound card just uh, if the, all these other things don't work for you. It just might be a bad one or a poorly designed one that once you connect it to a different device, it's finding ground somewhere else. Um, I recommend the Audio Science line. Just go to audioscience.com. Okay. Hopefully, Matt, that gives you lots of pathways to explore. Let's go to our next question. John Foltz in Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania, asked, Does anyone know about the prescription lenses for Enreal air glasses? Is it far vision or readers? Alex. Uh, they they have, a, 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 I think, two or three recommended ones, the, what he's talking about. There, it's actually used to be Enreal, now it's Xreal, I think. And these are the glasses that he's talking about. So these are, you'll see these, um, let's see if I can get them up there. But th there's uh, there's actually a little, a little screen in there. And um, there's some, and there are some lenses that, that will pop out um, there. there. There's no magnification on these. Um, but then you can get a, a, a prescription, and they have a couple suggested uh, suppliers of that. So you send your prescription, and they'll they'll uh, um, cut cut them out for you. So um, <coughs> so, so anyway, so that's the uh, um, you can get prescription ones. I'm using my contacts when I use them, just because it's easy. It's, it's a lot cheaper than having someone make them. I don't know how much they are yet. I, I'm I'm thinking about getting them. Um, I don't, you know, and so uh, it, it it could it could actually work. They're remarkably comfortable. 
Um, there is a little bit of light. Um, the, the monitors, there's some light that hits the side of the lenses just a little bit that you kind of, you can see when you're watching a movie. It's, it's very, very subtle, but you can't pick it up. But otherwise, it's a, it's a really fun thing to do. I think that I would, uh, I'm going to be, next time I fly, I think next week I have to fly, I'll probably watch, it's a very, it's a very short flight, so I'll probably just watch a TV show on it and see, see how it's, how, what it's like on a plane. But I think that they're actually a pretty, pretty good um, deal. We, we spend a lot of money on these VR goggles, and these are about, I think they're like 300 bucks or something like that, so, or $350, it's good. Remember, everyone, this show is driven by your questions. So if you have not put a question in and are curious about something, do so. The QR code is sitting right over there, and uh, you can scan that with your phone or anything else or type in what you see at the top of it, askofficehoursglobal.com. Uh, anyway, that is how the show works. Oh, also remember to vote. If you are in Makana and looking through the questions there, your votes do count because the things that have the highest votes we get to sooner and spend more time talking about. Let's go to our next question. From Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, I'd like to take an existing point of view video of a snowmobile causing an avalanche and composite that with a site video of vegetation following a similar path on a long selfie pole with a grab grip. What are your thoughts? <laughs> well, everybody's done that at some point, Alex. <laughs> Sounds actually pretty good. Um, I, 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 I think I I think I understand what you're trying to do is show vegetation that's built up or not built up um, after the in the aftermath of an avalanche. So later in the year or whatever that, that this is what the avalanche created. Uh, I'm assuming that that's what you're trying to do. Um, I think that um, I think that that's a. It sounds like a really interesting thing. You should be able to do that. I think the thing to think about is stabilization. What kind of camera you're going to use um, to make that actually happen um, to match that up. Um, I think um, you may find that you could. The thing that I would be tempted to do if you're really trying to match it frame for frame or or get it really close is to use a drone. So um, what I would think about is match moving. I mean, this will this is a little bit more more trouble than what you're talking about, but I actually think it'll end up being less trouble in the long term. Trying to match a POV exactly to the to the snowmobile data would be hard. Um, but what you may be able to do is is track all that data and figure out a way to get that motion spline back into a control point, you know, for a for a drone, and then run the drone. And the drone will run at the potentially at the same speed in the same place. Now the lensing may be different, but you may be able to match it almost verbatim to that. Uh, you might have to smooth it out, do a, a Butterworth smooth on it. Butterworth is actually technically the, <laughs> the calculation that you would do, but smooth out that thing so you get kind of this smooth move that goes right on it. And it, it, at first I didn't understand your question. Now I really want to do that. So send us the POV and we'll see if we can't figure it out. It, it seems like now now I'm like, oh, that would be that would be a lot of fun. I'll get Nick Justin in on it and and we'll 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 think about how to reproduce it, maybe even do a, some photogrammetry, throw it into Unreal Engine, um, add some monsters and a and a and a first person shooter and <laughs> you could be you could be shooting Yetis while the Yeti right, while going, while the while the avalanches are going. I mean there's a lot of places this can go. Courtney. Yeah, but you do have to find a friend with a death wish to drive the, the uh, snowmobile. <laughs> no, he's, he's already got there's the lots footage. of video online, by he's the way. He's already got the footage of, of the snowmobile. Of like snowmobiles he's got, causing yeah. avalanches taken from drones. And then you just have to find out what mountain it was taken on and then go back there in the summer and 
position your drone in the same position that the drone was when the avalanche <laughs> happened and capture it Nobody with the vegetation. We're office hours. There's no problem we can't overcomplicate. <laughs> <laughs> we can take your easy, easy problem and make it super hard. <laughs> but it'll probably be fantastic to watch. Let's move on to the next question. And now for something completely different. Uh, Bill Mew from Tunbridge Wells, UK, asked this question. There are several options for wireless mics, Rode, DGI, Hollyland, etc. Are there any with four transmitters for four at a time or two on charge with These two in four use? receivers, right? Um, I believe that would be transmitters. He said four receivers, but I think he means transmitters. Oh, transmitters down below. He, he really yeah. means transmitters. Receivers uh, are also, simple, but transmitters hard. Anyway... And Finishing the question, uh, that also does 32-bit float for quality. Any suggestions? Yeah, and so we have a note here. I think, I think he's talking about four transmitters. Four transmitters into one receiver is always problems. One transmitter into four receivers is pretty easy because you just tune the receivers. And so we've done that multiple times on set. One um, that many people need to listen to, one transmitter, and you can tune the four receivers to them. But the other way is complicated. Courtney, start us off here. Well, it used to be easy with analog transmitters and receivers for one transmitter. But you can, there are systems out there designed for the hobbyist that have, uh, here's one you can get from our friends in China for, with uh, four transmitters and one receiver that's designed to plug into an iPhone. So uh, uh, it'll take these four and it has to go into something with a USB on it as an interface because most of the... Lower price ones just come out as a stereo pair, so to keep these isolated, I guess it's got to go into something that has a uh, four. Will take uh, four inputs via USB. There's also the Ceramonic one for a lot more exp uh, expense. Uh, that's uh, four transmitters, one receiver for four hundred bucks. So you can find them. Uh, as far as 32-bit float and recording in there, the DJI's do, but they only do two at a time. You can buy two of the DJI sets and uh, pair them and when the when the receivers you know the receiver is the first thing that's going to run out of battery i think depends on whether or not you've got it plugged into usb input or you're taking the audio output out of it so if you got it plugged into a usb i think it can power itself the transmitters will then run out first but anyway you could buy two of those two in two transmitters one receiver and then swap them out after two hours uh, because they sync automatically when you put them in the charging case. So you could take the two off the people, put them in the charging case, and take your other two and swap the receiver out. Alex, thoughts? Didn't give a price. He didn't, he didn't. Uh-oh, uh-oh, watch out. Warning, everybody. So you wanted 32-bit recording, Dexcom. multiple receivers, multiple transmitters. All I can say is sound device is astral. <laughs> so, 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 if you're going to, like, you know, you didn't, you didn't give us a price. What, what would be the ante for that? Uh, $12,000? No problem. Plug exactly. it into your exactly. iPhone. So, <laughs> so uh, there, are, there, are, there are quite a few of these. Um, uh, sure makes an entire line, whether it's the, um, you know, there's a, there's a variety of um, Sure products that are designed for corporate that, that are going to give you those. The, the astral line from sound devices is something you can put into a, into a small pack. And it will um, get a, a, a lot of channels and let you manage those. And yeah, it's a little pricey. I'm not saying that it's not, but you, you have to, if, if you're going to ask, this is a lesson. And if you're going to ask us questions, uh, you you got to give us a price range of, of, of your target. <laughs> or we're going to give you 
the answer. Like the answer is the, is the sound of ice astral line. So um, that, that's that's how you make this go away. Um, if you've got, I think, with the transceivers and receivers and four and everything else, you're probably talking fourteen to eighteen thousand dollars. But but if it's but it but it'll work great. So anyway. I think mining the metal off that new asteroid is about the only thing I've seen so far that there isn't a budget that can handle it. everything That's else is possible. Let's go to the next question. Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. Alex, have you tested your ceremonic interface with an iPhone and do you have results to share with respect to the quality? What mics did you test with? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I have. I have. I don't think I have it within arm's reach right now, but I have a ceremonic. It's a two channel ceremonic, um, and it's just a hard line. Uh, you put a nine volt battery into it, so it can do 48 volt for the, for the uh, mics, and it goes into the lightning. I have to find something new now because I've got a new phone, but the, um, uh, the, although I, I haven't sent the other phone back, and it may just become, become my ca- my other camera. You know, like the, the I, again, it's very complicated. Anyway, so um, but the uh, it's got two channels in. I've been using it. I tested it with the Countryman and the DPA, and they worked great. And that's what I was looking for. A uh, little bit of self noise. I mean, it's not it's not the most quiet thing in the world, but well within reason to cover something with your phone. So so I'm not trying to get studio quality um, there. I think it's solid. I don't have any, you know, you've got control over your, you can hear it back. You can, um, you know, all the things that you need out of it. So I've been happy with it. Yeah, I have two of those units and I've used them occasionally in the field and they've been very serviceable. No, no real serious problems. Again, I wouldn't try to do, you know, super, super high. I wouldn't try to record a dialogue for an IMAX or something like that. But for regular stuff, it's perfectly fine. What I will say is that if you are not going away from your phone, it's really nice to have everything wired together, wired to it. Like if, if, if it's a little thing that you're walking around and covering, Definitely use wired instead of like some kind of go or some these these little wireless ones. I watch people do this all the time. They are walking around with their phone, but they're going to use a wireless for whatever reason. And you see them take hits all the time because you know these these less expensive um, you know two point four or five point are picking up all kinds of stuff as they go through. So they're at an event and they're stepping on each other. They're getting stepped on by other things when they could have just and when you're. If they were going to do something with it, that makes sense. But most of the time, they're not going anywhere away from their phone. <laughs> I'm like, just, just use a wire. It works. Uh, it's been working for the last 100 years. Next question. And it's another QR code drop question coming in from Todd Rains in Allen, Texas. Is there a wireless camera, think small, portable like action cam or security cam, that I can set up at a trade show booth for a weekend and watch it remotely or set it up as a time lapse and access the image file remotely? We have a lot of questions today. This is cool. Let's dive through this really quick. Chris, start us off. So, Todd, normally I wouldn't uh, recommend something as inexpensive as this, um, but I will say that I have been using a brand of security cameras called Eufy, E-U-F-Y. Um, you know, you're not going to make a TV show out of this unless you're trying to, you know, make a movie. Remember that mo- old movie, Paranormal, where it was all done off security cameras? Anyway, um, so Eufy has plenty of cameras. This one is $40, and it's a PTZ. It's not great quality, but you can absolutely follow the action. If you just want to, like, keep keep track of your, uh, your, um, your trade show booth and make sure everybody's working for the weekend... You could stick a card in it. It'll record it. If you need to, you can 
from your phone, you can go, hey, get, hey guys, get, get, get back to work. You can talk to it, you know, remotely, and you can scan through all the footage remotely. Um, there are multiple apps that you can use to monitor it. Uh, I'm using this to monitor cameras all over the house here. And um, you said security cameras, so I wanted to give you the absolute low end of the scale. I'm sure everybody else has something more expensive for you. Courtney? I have something even cheaper. The uh, Wisecam OG is $17.99 right now, which is uh, um, one that, uh, uh, you know, there it is, right? I don't know, it's down there somewhere, $17.99. Um, it does all that stuff. I think you can set it to time-lapse record. I'm not positive about that, but it does connect over Wi-Fi, and it does record locally onto a micro SD card. You can access it from the Internet. Uh, it has a player you can access from anywhere. The The most expensive uh, proposition for this is paying for... Uh, Paying for Wi-Fi connection or, or a wired connection at a trade show, which is going to cost you a hundred times more than these cameras will. Uh, Jeffrey Powers. So yeah, I was also going to suggest the Wise, the the uh, the first version Wise PT Z camera allows you to change the firmware to put in RTSP support, so you could actually uh, send that to. I could actually send it to. Uh, to my computer and then uh, send it to you guys if I wanted to. So if you get if you go that route, there's several different PTZ versions of security cameras from Wise and uh, uh, Solium and let's see, EasyViz and all these will allow you to do security camera. If you're doing it something that's you want to put out on like a YouTube or something like that uh, with time lapse, that's going to be a little tougher because lots of those uh, are going to not be clean feed. Of videos. So the other thing is uh, Obsbot did come out with a tail error and uh, I'm, it does have SD card uh, input. It also has HDMI, uh, micro HDMI. It also has uh, the ability to go wireless. But I would highly suggest that you, what you would do with that camera is bring it down to a little computer set up uh, the USB to Ethernet plug and then uh, of course uh, have it it'll run the power it'll run the Ethernet it doesn't do PoE unfortunately in that <clears throat> excuse me in that uh, such situation but at least you'll have a solid connection going and then bring it to the computer and then the computer could be hardwired to or if you can hardwire it to your uh, to the conference show because once you go wireless as Courtney said everything is going to go spotty you might not even be able to get in to check your feed Alex yeah, it depends on what your cell phone or uh, your cell coverage is like, but what we've done at events in the past is use a Nest with a MiFi. Um, we power it with a like an Anton Bauer V-mount batter, uh, battery, like a pretty big battery there, and we can attach them all to the end of the pole if we want to or have a little bit of power a little further down. Um, but we can attach them all, and they've, we've had them run all day. Um, at the end of the day, we swap the battery and turn them back on if we want to. Um, and the Nest will uh, record everything that you that you want there. Um, you can download those videos. And um, I don't really like taking time lapses. Uh, I take video and then I turn them into time lapses. And the reason for that is that in uh, typically in After Effects, um, there's a time echo uh, filter that's hidden in there that almost nobody ever uses ever. But it makes the most amazing time lapses because you're able to use the uh, additional frames uh, to reconstruct motion blur, and it looks really pretty. So, so anyway, so the um, uh, so that's the, that we've used nests and MiFi's um, frequently. Uh, you will have a 
big sell bill um, to do that if you if you don't if you have a limit there, but it'll be a lot less than whatever they're charging you um, at the venue. And I use the Arlo system. That's uh, security footage right there. So th- that the thing I like about Arlo is that the cameras are wireless and self-powered on batteries, so you just stick them magnetically up somewhere. But there's a lot of solutions, obviously. Oh. By the way, uh, if you want to do a really cool time lapse, do video with a FLIR. <laughs> so, oh. so yeah, and then forward-looking infrared. If you do both of them at the same time and you get them kind of, you kind of lay, lay them over top of each other, you can flicker, and it's it's cool. Sounds like a a fun recipe for Halloween coming up. Let's go to the next holiday, or next uh, question. Or holiday. A holiday question here from Talalik Lopez Waterman in Tallahassee, Florida. We talk about archiving photos and slides and the other. What is the most durable data storage? Magnetic hard drives, keeping them on film, SSD. How do we actually keep things for hundreds of years, probably books? Let's uh, start with you, Mitch. You asked the well, question. Quick, uh, yeah, quick anecdote on that. I just did a 100-year anniversary for uh, my old high school video, and uh, we had tons of footage you know, going back into the 30s and 40s and even the 50s. The stuff that I didn't have was when they shot it on tape, people using camcorders. So that just gives you an idea that when you're archiving things is to find a uh, mezzanine format that is going to last longer, probably data, because we ended up plenty of data files. Jeffrey Powers. Multiple copies. It's as simple as that. You don't trust one hard drive. You don't trust one SSD. You don't trust one anything. Uh, if, uh, hard drive, of course, a spinning hard drive could stop spinning. I had a hard drive do that last year, and I got m- tons of pictures that I didn't back up because I got COVID brain, and I, I just didn't do it. Uh, and that was stupid of me. Uh, so, But SSDs, they could get caught into a fire. They could get caught into something where they stop working. So the best thing to do is to get all the pictures done, put them on one device, make a copy on another device, send it to somebody else, make a copy. You could even put it on an SSD, put it into a, uh, into a bank vault. And uh, I can't think of the box. Ah, safe deposit box. Safe de- safety deposit box. We used to do that all the time with hard drives. We used to go to the bank and put our old hard drives in safety deposit boxes uh, and, and just back them up in multiple ways. That way, if one fails, you have another, and especially in 100 years. Alex? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm using archive, film, archive paper. Um, and printing those to it um, to to keep the ones that matter the most. Um, the uh, and then and then they go into you know there's a couple steps to that. It's not just archive paper. It's archive paper and then in a protective um, uh, um, package and then in in a somewhat controlled environment as far as uh, you know where where it goes so it's not too not, doesn't get too warm or too too wet or anything else. Uh, the standard is 321 for the, for the uh, we talked about this a little earlier, for your electronics, which means there's three locations, two on the ground that are in two different geographic locations and one in the cloud. And then the thing you have to think about is constantly moving your content forward. So I do this relatively often, not often, but every couple of years I'm moving stuff from old drives to new drives. And and you just kind of get used to these are the, the archive drives, right? And I don't keep every photo. When when everything is important, nothing is. You have to decide these are the photos that matter from my, my you know, and you, I have a folder that I throw them into. Oh, I can remember that photo. And there's still hundreds of them, but it's not 150,000, which is what I have on my, you know, like how many photos I've taken with my iPhone. So so you, you have to decide, you know, those 
Apple does a pretty good job of keeping uh, moving forward. But the other ones, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm, and and by the way, like all of my wedding photos are in in my iPhoto account, which means that they're all just kind of floating along with Apple, you know. And and I have every single photo that, um, from that, um, all three thousand. So so the uh, so the you can put a lot of stuff in there and just keep it and let it roll forward. Courtney. So when Apple goes under, Alex, all your memories are gone. Yeah, I'm pretty worried about that. Yeah, because you know they're right, right on the edge. You know, like the thing about Apple is, is that you just never. Every week you go, oh, ah, are they going to make it to the next week? I don't know. They could figure uh, out how I mean, to. We make did money. have that moment uh, thirty years ago, but it's been a while. <laughs> so, Chris Fenwick. Oh wait, oh, I wasn't finished yet. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I well, then finish. <laughs> I shouldn't start it with a joke. Okay. Uh, I I talked at a I went to a SEMTI meeting on archiving uh, a few years ago, and this was after they'd gone to DI's uh, digital intermediates for film work. So everything was going on the computer, and they were doing uh, effects and visual effects, and everything else was happening in post in digital and cinema. And I asked them how they were archiving because. Uh, you know, this film may have a big value 200 years from now. And they all said what they were doing is they would do a film out, film scan out to YCM separations. In other words, black and white film, uh, yellow, cyan, and magenta separations for each color. And they put them in a salt mine uh, so that they'll be around. That uh, S-star-based film uh, has been known to last hundreds of years. And they can reconstruct a full-color image regardless of how far the technology has come. Who knows in, you know, 150 years where we may be using quantum memory sticks, you know, and it's not going to be compatible with any of today's digital storage. So, Chris Fenwick. I think the interesting thing to, to um, examine in this discussion is what is the shelf life of those different medias? Like SSD, um, Paul... At Slice, he was saying, should we move everything to SSD? I go, I don't know. They haven't really been around long enough. I know that we have hard drives. I have hard drives that are 25 years old that I still get data off of. Are they going to last 100 years? No, probably not, but neither am I, so I don't care. Uh, and, and, and frankly, the stuff that's on it isn't all that good. I mean, some of it, you know, with these family photos, that matters. But um, so how long do hard drives last? How long do SSD last? How long does paper last? Uh, Courtney, the thing about printing it out in three different colors, the CMY, who's going to be around that knows how to put that back into a normal picture? I mean, you know, you have to leave an instruction manual on how to watch this thing. And this is, here's the instructions oh, on how to build it. You can see it because it's an image on a piece of film. Here's you don't have to decode it. It's no, I know, there. But, but you got to mix those colors together. And then, and then, you know, here's the instruction manual on how to build a, a film projector because those are all gone. Um, but the... I don't know what the shelf life of an SSD. Also, uh, who was it? So Jeffrey, I'll remind you something I, I talked about years ago. Hard drives, the number one problem with hard drives is what's called stiction, where the, it just doesn't spin. You power it up and it just goes, I don't want to spin. Pull the drive out, flip it upside down. I call it turtle spinning. Lay it on its back, spin it as fast as you can, and then grab it on the disk, on the desktop. And that usually gives... Uh, introduces enough inertia to get those platters to spin again, then power it up. I've done this easily a dozen times and saved hard drives. Yeah, my, that, this hard drive. Uh, I, yeah, I'm aware. It could of those. have bigger problems and, than that, but but that's yeah, the it does, number it one does, thing that happens in drives. 
It is one step. It was one step from me putting it in the freezer because once you put it in the freezer and then you try to pull the data, that's it. So I, once I have enough money, I'm going to actually take it to a an a, a company that that can pull the data off successfully. So, but right now, that's that's just it's just sitting in a box in a uh, in a temperature controlled environment. Mitch Hill, finish us up. Yeah, a, a couple of things to be on the lookout for is I shot a lot of footage on Betacam SP, even metal tape. Um, and uh, not too long ago, I was doing an archive and I was playing them back and there's all kinds of hits on them just because I guess Betacam tape starts to deteriorate. And the only way I was able to fix it was to uh, go in and check the uh, odd and even frames and find the opposite frame and double it up on uh, After Effects. And that was a real mess. The other thing to think of, remember jazz drives? I, I guarantee you that if you have a jazz drive with some, something important on it, it's gone. It's, uh, it's history because they were made from bad parts in the first place. And uh, even optical media uh, has problems because it gets uh, edge damage and other things start to happen. So uh, be on the lookout of what you currently have right now and get it off and get it onto a better medium. Important subject. And I like the curation part of this. Don't try to save everything. Uh, let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, Chris, how are you getting each application into loopback if the application doesn't support channel selection? Mr. Fenwick. Uh, the application in its totality has an audio output that goes into the Mac, presumably. And that's what loopback does, is it, is it captures that audio output and then it brings it into loopback, and then I assign it into wherever it needs to go. Okay, I hope that helps. Um, don't forget, we can still vote on things. So if you see questions in the queue and they're down a little farther than you'd like, add a vote and see if you can get it up a little higher. Let's go to the next question. From Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Thoughts on the new Photodeox DLX Parabolic Focusing Softbox? A low-cost breeze light? And that's interesting. We're out of newshooter.com. I haven't seen that. Courtney, your thoughts. Have you looked? Yeah, I have. And the difference between this one and most of the parabolic reflectors is this can move the light into the focal point of the parabola in the center, and then you can focus it by moving it closer and further away so that you can have a focusable beam of soft light. Uh, or you can use it like it's normally designed to use with the light on the outside. The problem with all of these is the thing is so big, these parabolas are so big, to mount them and use them in a, in a uh, normal room with an eight-foot ceiling is quite problematic to get it out of the shot of all the cameras. If you're using multiple cameras, the sound mixer is going to hate you because you've got a parabola that's right over the person. You can't, no way to get a boom microphone in there because the light is taking up all the space. You know, it's nice for still work, but, you know, for, for sound work, it's difficult and uh, it creates a lot of other problems but just because of the size of the reflector. But it gives you a nice, broad, soft source. Very broad soft source. I love those for still photography. Uh, Alex. Sorry. Um, the, uh, the, uh, bulky, like <laughs> exactly what, what Courtney said. It's just bulky. So I, I don't think that it'd be something I'd probably use in production. Um, yeah. yeah I, so there you go. Let's move to the next question. From David Brady in New York, New York, I'm looking to put together a test system at the office to shake out new gear. Is there any chance to get the source files used in the Zoom ISO rig for private and personal use? Alex. 
reach out to me. I, I think we can probably make that work. Um, it, it's not something we're going to make generally available, uh, but, uh, but you should reach out to me. Next question. And it's from Mike Potter in Hanover, Germany. For $99.99, the app Video Assist by Oran Studios Party Limited enables a USB-C containing iPad in combination with a USB capture card to act as an external monitor and recorder. Thoughts? Alex. Yeah, this was recommended by Guy last week, I think, and I, and I bought it. <laughs> so, um, and it's, uh, it works really well. So it does, there's a free version of, uh, there's a free, uh, another one for the iPad that's free, not great. Like it's free, so it's great for the price, but it's just the, the, the way that they've set up the interface is really hard. This one's much better. It's got some, um, you've got some scopes, you've got some other things to look at. I think there's a lot of room to improve for $99 and I've already sent them some feedback. Um, but uh, I, I think it could be the beginning of something really great um, to be able to have your iPad and have tons of controls and be able to draw on things and highlight things and everything else. So we'll, we'll see where it, where it progresses to. Uh, but it's a, it's, it's a cool app and if you just need to turn your iPad into it, it's a lot cheaper than buying another monitor. Let's go to the next question. Ronnie Hofse from Tromso, Norway, asking, I had a Samsung T7 fail on me today for the first time. Reason not enough speed. It is used a lot, so is it possible to refresh it, or should I just let it do other tasks until it's time for it to ride into the sunset? Alex, what say it, you? It may not be a refresh problem. So what happens is the T7s and the T5s are, are have a tendency, if you have a long transfer over 400 gigs, um, they're going to heat up and then they're going to slow down to almost nothing. Um, and this has been something that we've hit over and over and over again. And so the, the, the way to use a T7 effectively is either be patient or don't try to move more than 400 gigs at a time. Um, and so it's just, it's got a, it's got some kind of heat issue that it just slows way down when it's doing, um, you know, kind of a constant transfer. It's, we've had that problem since we turned them on three years ago or four years ago. Mitchell? Hey, Ronnie, I'd also consider making a move to the OWC Envoy series. They're uh, very fast, very small, and work great. Let's go to the next question. Next one in from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. If you're watching slides with a family, how might you get the narration, sorry about the trash, uh, recorded from multiple family members all at one time? Let's assume the slides are already in a digital format. How about Zoom? Chris Fenwick. Roscoe, I think this is a really neat idea. Let's say you had family distributed around you know, the country or world, whatever. And you wanted to step through the slides and just get people to talk about it. It might be a fun thing, maybe not, for, you know, grandchildren to watch one day to, you know, hear their grandparents talk about that vacation they did, whatever. Um, and yeah, you could do it on Zoom. You know, uh, pipe a slide deck into one Zoom uh, instance and let people log on. Um, I... I shudder at the idea of my mom participating in a Zoom meeting. She'd, she'd be kind of confused. Uh, but it's an, it's kind of an interesting idea to, to do that. People are going to step on each other, and it's not, not going to be easy to edit if you wanted to fix it. But it's a, it's a really interesting idea. Yeah, I think it, it's fascinating to me, too. Courtney, any other ideas? 
Yeah, go with Chris's idea if you're remotely, you know, if you can't get together. But if you have a family reunion, our old friend, the Ceremonic uh, Blink 500 Pro with four transmitters and one receiver. That way you could place the transmitters around, maybe at each table for uh, groups of family members, and then uh, have them each recording into separate channels, and then you can, in the mix, separate out who's speaking and control uh, the auto, and not, not an auto mix, but a post mix, and control the sound that way. Okay, let's go to the next question. Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. Apologies for not being specific about my mix minus question. I have the audio mix minus handled. What I need is a mix minus for videos, so I don't return guest video back to them. Do I need to get a constellation? Alex? Yeah, I do think the Constellation um, series has this built into the switcher. So the um, uh, so that that's already been, um, uh, you know, so you can do it with the Constellation there. It's more complicated, but not impossible to do it, you know, in other ways. But the way to do this with, with Extreme would be something that probably using Isadora and um, uh, Mix Effect Pro, or maybe we can get Adam to put something into Mix Effect Pro to do this. The issue that you have is what you, what you need to do. We've done this with multiple switchers um, because what we've done is we've done things where we have five venues come in at one time, and then the um, uh, we have five venues coming at a time, and we're jumping back and forth between each venue, and the venues all have to have mix minus as they go, so that they can't see themselves come back in the in the feed that's going out. Um, and the way we do that is you have to say, "Give me the last feed that wasn't me." You know, like that's the that's what Zoom's doing. You know, and when it's doing presenter, give me the last feed that is not me, and you have to set up that that logic so that it's constantly turning everything on and off, and everybody has their own feeds there. It's not something that um, that I've seen anything build that into um, in into the switcher. We've always done it externally, and it took us a little bit of work <laughs> to make that happen. But it would be really interesting to see if Mix Effect Pro could just have that built in of setting a, a video mix minus for an output. Um, I think Adam could build that and that would be, because um, it wouldn't be hard to code it so that it just does it. It says this output is this input's mix minus and then it just has a little bit of logic in there to just say never show yourself, always show the last thing that was shown before yourself. Um, that's not a complicated logic tree. Anyway, it's interesting. Oh, and um, uh, I am, let's go to the next question. Next question from Zian Ortiz in Florida. Again, when archiving photos and slides and others, how often should you update the file formats? Sometimes programs are no longer supported or unavailable to run on current systems. What are your thoughts on this? Good, Chris. Um, definitely pay attention. I mean, I'm old enough. I've seen, you know, file formats and codecs like just disappear. Like, oh, that doesn't work anymore. So definitely pay attention. Um, by and large, most stuff lasts decades, but they could they could become a problem. I go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, as Alex was saying earlier, is refresh. Uh, once there's a new technology that comes for storing digital media on some new device, migrate everything to the new media uh, to keep it fresh. Uh, because, you know, I have hard disks, they're IDE interfaces, and you can't find a computer that can interface to an ID, old IDE drive very easily at all. Yeah, you go ahead, Chris. And just real quickly, I want to mention, uh, no, never mind. <laughs> uh, next question. 
Next question in from Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. Alex, does the Blackbird 8x8 HDMI matrix support downscaling of 4K input signals to 1080p output? I notice not all HDMI matrix can do this. Yeah, I believe that. I, I've never had to do it because I feed it what I want to get back out again. So I haven't really tried to get it to do any kind of downscaling. Um, I looked at the manual and um, uh, I looked at the manual and it it is... Um, uh, it does say that it will downscale to 1080p60 um, for four of the inputs. So four of the inputs, it will actually do the downscaling. Um, so so the um, so I think that that is the that is the um, uh, that that's the maximum there. So you can get some downscaling, but it's not scaling across all of them. Um, but I haven't tried that again because I tend to be very kind of systematic about stuff, and I don't want to. I don't I don't want to necessarily. Um, uh, mix and match my stuff. <laughs> so, so anyway, so that's that, that, that's what I that's that's how I think through that process. Uh, we got we have, we're going to talk about camera sensors here in j- just a minute. Um, and uh, but I would um, I just want to remind you that of course we have OWC talking about storage here tomorrow. Um, uh, so um, so we'll be talking about that the jellyfish and lots of big storage. And so there's been a request to talk about storage, and these guys are the experts at it. So they're going to be coming in and joining us and talking about that on f- Saturday. Of course, we have just general Q and A. But we're doing testing with HDR and 5.1 and, and um, 4K, so you'll see a little bit of those tests there. Um, and uh, uh, on Sunday, of course, is introspection, where we just kind of, you can ask you know, concerns, comments, questions, etc. Um, so so um, go ahead and bring you those comments and concerns with you. Uh, and a quick reminder that we are looking for panelists. You can find out more if you fill out a form at officehours.global slash panelists. Let's go ahead and jump into the second hour. Welcome back to the second hour, and we're going to be talking about uh, sensors. Um, so, so camera sensors, um, and why we pay attention to um, some sensors and not other sensors. Um, so the uh, um, so the uh, and 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 I think that it's important because and and we're specifically talking about camera sensors. We there's lots of sensors that you could. There's scientific sensors. There's all kinds of heat sensors. There's um, you know uh, low light sensors. But what we're talking about today are camera sensors and what and the things that we um, are thinking about. Um, as we start to make a decision about what what's the next camera we're going to buy, um, and we are making we have to make lots of choices when we, when it comes to those camera sensors. And so, if you've got questions about sensors, go ahead and throw those in, um, and uh, and so we'll um, and we'll kind of discuss it. Now, I I think we had some slide decks, but I don't know if they're here right now. <laughs> so we're gonna we're just gonna jump into it, jump into the into the drawing portion of this uh, of this puzzle here. Um, so the, there's a couple things when you're thinking about sensors um, that we you know that that are both. Some of them are historical in the sense that uh, we don't we can't really use them anymore. So, for instance, for a long time we had uh, CCDs, um, and and um, and the CCDs uh, were three chip. Well, typically, I mean, you could have one chip, but we a lot of us had three chip CCDs, and these were all global shutter. So, what that meant was it charged the entire sensor at one time, and then grabbed all the and and then grabbed all the data out of it. So, um, as we the the way to Scale. This was decided sometime I don't know, 15 years ago, um, that the only way we're going to be able to scale the quality of the chip was to move to a CMOS chip, um, and that's what almost all cameras sit on now. Um, and CMOS chips can be a global shutter or a um, a, a, a um, rolling shutter. The difference between those, um, uh, we'll just talk about shutters here for just a second, is 
how it reads that chip. And, and the way to think about the chip is you, know, you don't think about it as a single sensor. It's a, it's a bunch of photocytes. So, um, so basically you have a, a chip. Um, let's see here. If I turn this on, am I going to get... Uh, give me one second here. Sorry, the, we had a little change in the back end, and, and I'm not sure exactly what happened. So I'm I'm just dancing along here for a second. Um, and um, the uh, well, actually, I'm going to let while I do this, I'm going to let Courtney talk a little bit about sensors, just the the mechanical. I'm just going to throw Cor- Courtney right into the into the into the thing here. Just talk a little bit about the how the sensors actually work. I hear that bus coming. Yeah, 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 uh, <laughs> yeah sensors work, uh, CMOS sensors work. They have what's called a Bayer filter for color, uh, which is it's a single uh, sensor area with little tiny filters for red, green, and blue in front of each of the pixel sensors. And each of those pixel sensors has a, uh, a light-sensitive element in a transistor. Uh, and as the light hits that, uh, comes through the filter for a red, green, or blue, and usually there's twice as many green sites as there are red and blue. Uh, it will uh, store the voltage for each individual pixel, uh, and then it is scanned out. And it depends on whether it's global shutter or uh, progressive shutter, uh, progressive readout. Either it'll read it out a line at a time, and that gives you the rolling shutter effect, or it'll freeze, it'll, it'll have a signal that will basically turn off all the transistors that are capturing those voltages to the individual pixels at the same moment in time, so that it can then be read out, so that all of the voltages that were captured were captured at the same instant. That way, that's the global shutter, so you don't get any latency from the top of the frame to the bottom of the frame, uh, which is what causes you that jello effect if the camera's moving, etc. And then, of course, those uh, R, G, and B values are stored in a matrix of data uh, and output uh, as separate uh, separate selections of values and uh, recompile later with a debarring filter that reconstructs your color image from the individual red, green, and blue filters. And it uses weights because the green there's more green sensor sites than there are red and blue. And- and it's actually um, about it's fifty percent of the of the of the sensor sites are, are green, twenty five percent red, twenty five percent blue, um, typically. So, and this is, by the way, why you should almost always use a green screen. <laughs> so, so, so if you're if you're if saying, should I use green or blue? And that and there are reasons to use blue in darker if you're doing like a darker scene. Um, in some cases where people are wearing green, um, those types of things. But for the most part, um, blue is the, is, I mean, green is the right way to do that because there's more, it's specifically because these sensors are, um, just are, are uh, populate that better. Now, the thing to remember also is that the sensor itself is, if you think about the sensor, it is just grayscale. You know, that there's just a, each, each sensor site, uh, if, we, if we think about it, um, you say, think about a sensor here, uh, the, you know, each one of these is just, it's just an icy light. But what happens is, is that they are then filters are added to them. So you have, you know, I'm not going to do the exact pattern, but you get the idea, green, green, red, and blue, you know, it's not that pattern. But but the point is, is that there's filters on top of each one of those that are filtering out only that color or or allowing you to only have that color so that it's just seeing red or just seeing green. But the the sensor itself is just a black and white sensor with these filters sitting on top. Now, the, the, again, as, as Courtney said, the, when you're charging it, is it is it going down line by line, or is it grabbing it all at one time? That's a big, that's a pretty big deal. There, Courtney has the has the pattern, the actual pattern um, that that we're looking that that we need there. The um, 
Um, now, the one thing that's important to understand, because you, if you ever look at a raw photo or a raw output of these, is everything looks a little out of focus. And the reason for that is because all of these pixels are next to each other, not on top of each other. There is one chip that puts them on top of each other. It's called the Foveon. The Foveon chip, which I think, is it Fuji or Sig Sigma has the... They're, they're the only ones that use that chip, but those, those they put red, green, and blue on top of each other, um, and that does produce a sharper image. So almost all, all cameras, to some degree, will have some sharpening added back into them because they, you know, and what, you know, the sharpening basically gives you the impression of being sharp by basically accentuating the, the edges, you know, and that's a, using a high-pass filter and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you can. There are, uh, like the original CCD, which uses a different technology for reading out the, it was charge-coupled device for reading out the individual uh, photon sites. Uh, there are three-chip uh, cameras that use CMOS as well, but they have a smaller target size because you're not interlacing, interleaving all the three colors on a single plane. And those type have, since they have a smaller target size, they have a prism that separates the red, green, and blue into the individual light paths, uh, into individual chips, one for red, one for green, one for blue. Uh, and then... Um, because of the smaller sensor size, your depth of field is much greater, so you don't have that narrow depth of field you have in the large sensor size of the uh, CMOS chips. And, so, and, and depth of field is another important um, subject. So a lot of us talk about you know, sensor size. Sensor size gives you two main advantages. One is um, the larger the sensor, the, the larger the sensor site. So a sensor site is, is each one of these little sites on the, on the sensor, the you know, little buckets, that, you know, digital buckets that are sitting there grabbing onto the light. The larger they are, the less errata. So the less that they're going to be wrong about it, about what they're looking at, especially at low light. When there's not much light, they, the error level goes up, you know, in what they're, what, what the photo site's seeing. So, so the larger the, the, the photo sites, the more sensitive they are, um, to, um, light because they, they have less of a chance. You're getting down into the noise of the sensor, um, when it gets really dark. And so you end up with a lot of grain and, and just, just, it's, you know, trying to figure out what's there. Whereas if the sensor site is larger, it will be able to absorb that and be more accurate. The, on the far end of that, you see things like the Canon ME20. So the Can, Canon ME20 is um, from a commercially available um, device. It's probably the lowest light um, you know, uh, system that we use. It's about $20,000 for the camera. And it is a full-frame sensor, but only 1080p. <laughs> so, so instead of being a, a, a camera sensor that might do um, 24 megapixel or a 4K sensor, it is a 1080p sensor at full frame size. And that means the photo sites on average are seven times bigger than a regular photo site that you would see in a cam in a re regular camera. And the result of that is a ISO of, a, of 4 million and a usable ISO of about a million. Um, you can, we've done shows where we, we actually had to warn the person shooting, they were, this was in Tanzania, that the um, hyenas were getting very close. And they didn't, because they weren't really, they couldn't see them, but we could. <laughs> it's just like we were on the other end going, you know, hyenas are really right in front of you, <laughs> like just, just so you know that they're, they're right there. And, um, and so, so the, uh, uh, these, these cameras can be um, very, very, very uh, low light. So that photo site is important. So the, the problem you get into is you get, you see like a big, big frame. Um, and this is, this is where you, you see these problems related to, um, uh, 
the you know one of the issues that you that you'll get into here is that if you get a like a the Blackmagic 12K is a great camera, but one of the challenges that it has is that it's using a Super 35 sensor, and then it put 12K you know it put a 12K image you know image into a Super 35 sensor, and the issue there is that you're packing those pixels really they're packing each one of those photo sites really close together, and that tends to lower its ability to handle low light as well as it as it could have otherwise. So so you're kind of balancing that that process. The second thing of course that the larger sensor size does is give you a more shallow depth of field. And so depth of field is driven um, you know, uh, by that. The three things that really drive your depth of field is your lens length, like how long your, how, your the length of your lens or, or, or how, um, how much of a zoom you have on it. Um, the, uh, the second is your aperture size, so how big the aperture is. And then finally, the the size of your um, uh, the size of your sensor. As the sensor gets larger, of course, your depth of field gets shorter. And the way you want to think about all of those is really think about a um, if you think about you know the sensor, but don't think about the sensor as much as thinking about well, think about the sensor here. And then you have a photo site that's there, and you want to think about the aperture and also the the size of the sensor um, is controlling a um, a, let's just say a, a pyramid like this that's going up like this. This pyramid, when you open up the aperture or you have a larger sensor, gets wider. Um, and as you, as you make it, um, uh, if you have a smaller sensor or a smaller um, aperture, think of it as getting much thinner. And so you have a thinner thinner triangle or a or thinner pyramid or a wider pyramid. And why that's important is as you wide that pyramid out, there's only one place that's purely in focus, but it's how big, if you think about the, um, if you think about this pyramid here, uh, again, if you, if you think about this and think about, don't think about the pixel as a point, think about it as a square that goes up. And the bigger that square is the, um, or the, you know, as, as this gets wider, that square can only go up so much before you start. That's that's a whole pixel. So it's the, when it's getting out of focus, it's in the focus in relationship to one pixel. Um, so so that as it as that as that um, pyramid gets much thinner, you can go way up and down it, and it's still it's still not losing focus. It's losing focus, but not larger than one pixel as far as the calculation goes. And so so you so what happens is is the sensor size. As it as it um, gets smaller, of course that that pyramid gets thinner, and then everything stays in focus. And so a lot of us would prefer <laughs> not, not not to do that, um, you know. And the big thing is is the depth of field allows us to separate ourselves from the background. So so the um, you know you can see with with mine you know uh, in my wall of depreciation, um, I have uh, you know it falls off. Um, and it could fall off a lot faster if I had a, you know, again, I'm at a 1.8 right now on a Super 35 sensor. At a full-size sensor, this would probably be half the, you know, it'd be twice the drop out of focus there. And so so as we look at those things, we want to, um, you know, you make those decisions. A lot of us, you know, it doesn't always mean you're looking for the largest sensor. So, for instance, if you watch um, football, if you watch uh, American football at least, 
what you'll, one of the things you'll see is you'll see a really short depth of field running around on a steady camera when they score a touchdown or between when they're about to go away, you suddenly see this really short depth of field. And what they're doing is I think they're putting a, I think it's a Sony A7S or something like that on a steady cam. I mean, they might be using something different now, but, but they were when they first tested it. Um, and they're doing these, they, they have these steady cam shots. They're really, everybody's really close. They're only 20 feet away and everything's short depth of field and it suddenly looks like a film. Um, and that's great. That is completely impractical for the rest of the game because the, the, the other thing that we were talking about is focal length. As focal length increases, the depth of field gets shorter as well. And the issue that you get into with your chips is that you start to, um, that you can't keep focus. You know, if you look at the short depth of field in a football game, that's on a two-thirds inch chip. That's not a very large chip that is going to those those camera sensors and it can't get larger. It cannot get larger. And the reason it cannot get larger is because they're shooting thousands of millimeters. You know, it's a th- you know, it's it's a it's a long shot. These are huge box 90x box lenses, 100 you know, x box lenses that are shooting these long shots and that short that depth of field even with that chip size is getting just short enough that someone can manage it. If you put a super 35 in, the the there would there be almost nothing in focus ever. You know, and so so the way we think of that is that you know I shoot um, almost everything at uh, um, super 35 or or higher. So, um, but that's all under 75 feet. So at seven at 75 feet, we shift down the two thirds inch chips. Um, and the reason we do that is so that we can maintain focus. So so the um, uh, so those are the things that we we kind of take into account as we start to think about those chip sizes um, as we start to put those together. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, this is a full frame sensor with a 2470 lens at 2.8. Aperture, I've got it fully open, and that's to be a, able to get this. And that's a good that's a good example of you know that one of the advantages of getting a larger sensor is that you can close that lens down. You can get a lens that, like for instance, uh, it's very hard to get a zoom lens that goes below two point eight. It's not impossible, but it's not it's very expensive. Um, and so when you go up to a full frame sensor, and I'm thinking eventually I'll get a full frame. I'm kind of waiting to see. You know, Sony now has this new um, LR. Um, one, which is a, it's basically the full frame sensor that we see on the Sony cameras, except it's on like a little, like it looks like a webcam size. It's really designed to go on drones. I want to see if that works. And like, if I can actually make that work for a, as a webcam. Um, so I'm waiting to see if that, I ha- I don't think it's out yet. So I haven't been able to test it, but, but the, um, but I am thinking about going to that. But a lot of the reason is, is that I can go to a 2.8 lens. It's not that I can go to 1.4 at a full frame because that'll be nothing in focus again. I mean, this will just look like a wash behind me. Um, and so, uh, but I, but it does let you go down a little bit and still get that shorter depth of field. And, you know, again, with a lot of cameras, for instance, cameras are often sharpest in about the middle, like 5.6. And so you can have the sharpest lens if you're closing down a little bit to make that work. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it's been a while since I've specced broadcast cameras, Alex. I was going to ask you, are all these uh, sports-related broadcast cameras three-chip with a uh, uh, prism block uh, to get the smaller uh, sensor size so that they can have more depth of field? Or are they... No, they're... They're, they're, uh, they're I believe, still using a, CMOS, yeah, I mean, a single CMOS chip as I, opposed I do, to three I, CMOS chips? Uh, I, don't, I don't think they're using it. <laughs> I can look. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Because with a single one, they, they got to, you know, takes up three, four times the area of a sing, of a three-chip camera for each individual color to get the same resolution of pixels. Yeah, I don't, I, I am, I am not, um, not certain. Um, yeah, uh, go ahead, um, Mitchell. 
Can we chat about cropping sensors? Yeah, so what you're doing there is, you know, you have a full-frame sensor, um, and then what you are uh, doing when you crop it, it's just instead of, so there's a couple different ways to go to a longer, to go out to a smaller resolution. So let's say you have a 4K sensor and you want to go out at 1080p. You can, there's two ways to do that. You can either scale it down and send it out, or you can crop the sensor. The advantage of cropping the sensor is it's actually because the lens is designed for the, or, you know, typically designed for the larger sensor, you're cutting into the center of that lens, which means it's basically like adding focal length to it. So you're, you know, um, so you're basically going, I'm going to, we're only using the center part of the sensor, which means you're only using the center part of the lens, which means it's as if it was, you know, and typically if you go from a full frame to uh, a super 35, I think that crop factor is like 1.6 or something like that. So, so it's like adding on to the end of your lens. And a lot of times we, we kept, we make that calculation for sensors, because if we get a lens that's designed for a full-frame sensor, we can multiply it. I mean, I don't multiply by 1.6. I just do 1.5 because it's easier to do in my head. And and so I get roughly, oh, I'm, I'm roughly at this focal length. And so we use the crop sensor sometimes to buy more out of a lens. So especially when you're using larger frame. So if you're using a Super 35 or there are limits, at once you go to Super 35 and above, there are limits to what lenses you have available to you. And so um, oftentimes the, the longest lens that we can put on, a, on our cameras is a Canon 50 to 1000, which has also got a, it's got a, like a, I think a 1.5 extender in it. Um, and then the, um, so you can get up to about 1500. And then we might, if you're really shooting, and this is a long distance, if you're shooting, um, you know, uh, 150 feet away or something, you might crop the sensor and then you'll, it'll buy you more. It'll get you out a little bit further. Um, you know, through that lens. And so, so cropping the sensor um, is a fast way to get, is to, is a, it, it also takes less um, processing. So what they're doing on the camera is they are, so some cameras won't, they'll let you crop, they won't let you scale in real time because they don't have the processing to do that. Most don't do that anymore, but that's, that's something you have to think about. But the cropping the sensor is going to extend the focal length of your lens um, and uh, but you, you're cropping down to 1080p or whatever. Um, the advantage of again getting one of the advantages of taking the full frame and then scaling down, you're not going to get um, that extended lens length. Um, and we've done this like so. For instance, uh, we just did this last week um, for a, a show in New York. Um, the FR7, you know, the end of the lens on the FR7 is a is the 35 to 128. I think is the only one for zoom, and we cropped it. You know, so because we only need a 1080p show, so you crop sense, you do a crop on that, on that lens, and that you know extends the lens out, so that the lens, the cameras could be a little further back, and we'd still get the shots we were looking for. So, so there, so you can, you know, that's how we're extending that FR7 a little bit beyond while we're waiting for Sony to give us longer lenses for that camera. So um, the, but even then, we'll just find another way to crop that sensor, you know, to go back out again. So crop sensors can can get you a little bit more on the lens. What you give up is the opportunity to have a um, oversample. So what we do with oversampling is if, if I shoot a bigger image than I need and then I sample it down, um, what I end up with is a smoother image at the end because it's, it's basically using bicubic um, interpolation. So it's looking at all the pixels around it, you know, and, and um, it takes a pixel and it's got to figure out, you know, I've got, um, you know, I mean, the simplest way to think about this is that I have... Um, you know, I have four pixels that I'm now going to make into, you know, two, right? <laughs> you know, two pixels, or, or actually one pixel. So if I if I look at these, if I have these four pixels here, 
and I'm going to take it down to, you know, um, a single pixel, that single pixel is going to be an average of, and there's a lot of different ways of interpolating that average of those four pixels. You know, so I, I'm going to pop the, I'm going to bring them down. When I do that, um, as it calculates that, it, it oftentimes it averages out a lot of the grain, so so it, you get rid of a lot of grain by and and that grain can be generated because it's low light. It can be generated because there's a lot of reasons it can happen. So over uh, you know shooting at a chip, one of the things people make a mistake of is they just go, well, I only I have a you know I have an 8K camera or a 4K camera, but I only need 1080p, so I'm only going to shoot it at. I'm going to crop it or I'm going to only, you know, you know, get that. But the advantage of, or shooting it, the advantage of doing a 4K image or an 8K image or a 12K image of your footage is not that you may use it. And people go, well, I'm never going to use it at 12K. Yeah, but the 1080p will look amazing, <laughs> you know, or the 4K will look amazing. If you go, if you, um, if you scale that down, it's going to make it really milky and very smooth because you're getting rid of all of the errata um, that was that was in there. You're a- averaging that all out as you scale it down. So so there are advantages to shooting at the higher resolution and scaling down later, um, as opposed to crop censoring. Um, when you crop censor, you're still getting the raw the raw crop um, the raw uh, camera data, which may be what you want. I mean, again, it extends it, but but I wouldn't do it automatically. Like I would want that extra data if I could have it. Um, yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. I, one last question. Um, how, what is the naming convention? I'm always confused by the uh, the annotation for uh, sensor size, like one over two, or is it? it it's a ratio. Like a, I mean, it's a ratio. Sometimes okay. they they. <laughs> here's the worst part: is sometimes they give you the actual size. Um, I mean, it's it is one inch over or one over something for the you know it's the, it's in inches of all things. There are some conversions on the online to tell you how many millimeters. It's the diagonal. Uh, size of the chip, so that's the you know. So you're, if you're thinking about that chip there, you're you know the the size of the the sensor is is this distance, right? Just like your TV, you know. And so that's that's the that typically is the size there. When you see um, uh, <laughs> when you see one, I'm sorry, because <laughs> it's a really funny thing to look at. Uh, if you see one over third, uh, one over three, of course, it's one third chip. You know, one third inch is this distance. Um, that's a really bad, a bad uh, three. Sorry about that. Um, but the funny, the funnier, the fun, one that I find funny is like one over two point six is a really popular one right now. And I think it, they, it, it literally. I mean, it's still basically one third. <laughs> like, you know, like it's, it's, it's a little better than one third. But I think that it actually is. I feel like what they did was they went one over two point six because. It confuses people. It, they can no longer do the math of and and when I see one over two point six or one over two point eight, I'm just like, okay, it's a th- it's a one third inch chip. Like you know, like it's you're you know you're you're fiddling with it. And and the reason for that is that people learn not to buy one third inch chips a while ago because they have a higher chance. You know, one third, and for a lot of times we had corporate cameras that were one quarter. Um, and number one is your depth of field is almost infinite. <laughs> like, so everything's going to be sharp. Um, and a lot of your webcams are like that. Um, number two is that the, um, is that you, they're much more, re, um, much less resistant to grain. So you see a lot more grain and low light and their, their low light performance is going to be lower. So as those chips get bigger, um, then it, it starts to make a big difference. And so I, again, I would, I would say that for a web camera, I lean into a, um, you know, one point. Uh, I'm sorry, one half inch chip is kind of table stakes. Like I'm not, if I don't see, if I see 1.2, 
uh, one point one over two point. If there's a point after the two, I'm done. Like I don't need. I don't. There's nothing there for. There's nothing there for me. Um, and so half inch chip, and that has to do with color representation, um, grain. You know all those things. And then, um, and then what I really, you know, what we're hoping to see is some webcams to start coming out at one inch. You know, like I think that there's a market for that, and I'm, you know, that's what I, you know, and so I, I, I feel like Sony is so close with the LR1. Um, that that I feel like it'll be really it's expensive, but I think that someone could see oh we we could do a super thirty five web camera or something like that. The, a lot of those chips have become a lot less expensive, and Sony makes chips that are less expensive there. And I think that there's a there's a there is an appetite for super thirty five webcams. I I know it sounds crazy, but it's it is a. Uh, it's crazy how much we're spending on cameras that do a whole lot. Like the camera that I'm using right now is Super 35. It's an $800 camera. It is, does so many things I don't need it to do. <laughs> you know, like, like I, you know, like, and so I just need the sensor and the, and the lens mount, you know, on it to, to do what it needs to do. And so, and Sony could probably drop that from $800 camera down to a $500 camera or $400 camera if they just got rid of all the, everything else that I didn't need, you know? And so that's the, that's the, um, we're hoping to see Sony go to somewhere down that path. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Uh, Chuck Japley from New York City asking, I want to upgrade my setup from a Canon camcorder with a one-inch sensor to a mirrorless camera with a full-frame sensor. How much better is the resolution low-light work on the mirrorless? Well, it's not really the mirrorless that's going to make the, I mean, the mirrorless isn't going to change the low-light. It's the size of the sensor and the quality of the sensor. And so, um, so it is your resolution, I, you know, it depends on what you're doing with it. But typically at full frame, you're going to get at least 4K, if not 6K or, or even 8K um, coming into that full frame sensor. The, um, your low light is going to be better than the one inch. Um, it is, uh, but the, the mirrorless is not necessarily the thing that makes the difference. It's the quality of that sensor. Uh, next question. James Babbitt from San Diego, California. Has anyone on the panel noticed any differences in the picture quality of the iPhone 15 Pro Max versus the iPhone 14 Pro Max? I have both of them. Uh, they're, they're right here, hugging at the moment. Um, and um, the uh, 15 is you better. I don't know if I, at the same focal length, it's better, but being able to go to 5X definitely makes a difference, you know, so, um, and, and so the 5X lens is a game changer, in my opinion. There's a lot of things that I wanted to step a little closer to that, and I use the 5X all the time. <laughs> so, so um, I think that it's, uh, it works really well. Next question. Ronnie Hofsoy from Tromso, Norway. Which of the newest Blackmagic cameras has sensors that will match our Ursa Broadcast G2s and will do a great job in virtual production scenario on a green screen? Uh, maybe share Canon EF mount lenses as well? I mean, the big thing I would look at there is that, I mean, I think that the, I don't know if they'll all match. As Blackmagic goes up, they're going to generally um, move to, uh, you know, they're going to change the way the chips work a little bit um, as they keep on moving forward. So, um, you know, I think that that's something you kind of have to take into account. The big thing you want to think about there is even if you're doing a 1080p show is resolution matters when it comes to green screen because remember that the the other thing that's going on is the subsystem inside the camera is a 422 subsystem, not a 444 subsystem, at least in Blackmagic. Uh, this camera right here, like for instance, that's CCD, that's a that's a Sony F950, um, and it is CCD and it's 444. So it has all the, you know, so at 1080p, it was capable of doing, you know, every pixel as being, um, can be keyed. 
um, the problem with a four-two-two setup, and of course, four-two-four. You know what that means is is that for every um, you know four pixels of black and white information, I only get um, I only get two pixels of four-two-two. Would mean I only get um, two of the pixels are going to be color, so it's half the res it's half resolution um, of that color. And what that leads to is when you pull a green screen with four two two, you're going to get a little bit of stair stepping because you're literally cut you're literally keying half of the half of the resolution. The way to um, get around that is to shoot a four K for a ten eighty p frame. So if you shoot four K at a ten eighty p and then go down, um, you're going to end up with a um, Something that is very equivalent to four 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 for for that. So so I would look at a four K camera that you're going to do in a four K ultimate. Um, even if you're going to, you may look at I'm doing a 1080p show, but you want to do it in you if you can key it in four K. You you will get a much better resolution. Where you're going to see that typically is going to be hair. You know, hair is going to be much better represented at four 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 than it is at at four two two. That's that's where we really see it in soft edges. Hair; those are the things that that pops out in. Um, but uh, I don't think that I, I think that your broadcast cameras that are super thirty five. I'm really excited to see that we saw one camera show up at full frame from Blackmagic. Um, so I, I hopefully we'll see more of that. Next question, Eduardo Augustine from Panama City, Panama. What is the difference of having a bigger sensor camera? Comparing between one inch versus one over three, and why is one inch better? Good, Courtney. Well, it depends if you're shooting, as was said earlier, uh, high-speed sports where you can't predict where the focus is going to be or you have really long lenses. Um, the uh, smaller size, the one-third inch, is probably better because you have a much better depth of field. The one-inch gives you a much shallower depth of field, and it also gives you probably that one-inch sensor uh, gives you... Uh, a faster sensor. In other words, it can uh, work a lot better in low-level light. So you can shoot in a lot less fully illuminated. It takes a lot more light to illuminate a third-inch sensor than it does a one-inch sensor usually because the transistor that is in each photo site sits usually on the glass uh, of the sensor and it blocks some of the light hitting the uh, photo resist or the photodiode that is beneath it. So uh, that the smaller the sensor, the smaller the transistors have to be to block less of the light. And that, that way, the ratio of the size of the transistor to the size of the photoreceptor uh, determines how fast the uh, sensor is or how much light it takes. It can build up to uh, capture its image. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, so you're definitely going to get typically much better low light performance, a higher dynamic range. We didn't talk about dynamic range, but that's another thing you want to look at when, you, when you're looking at um, the chips. Is um, you know what kind of dynamic range? I mean, you should see at least twelve stops, and some of the chips are going up to about eighteen stops of of uh, dynamic range, and uh, and so those are those are other things to kind of consider. Um, another thing to think about is whether it's dual ISO or not, or and that may not be as much of the chip as the processing. Um, so sometimes that it, it will lean one way or the other, so that you have a low ISO and a high ISO. Um, and so if you're going to low light, you can jump to that higher ISO. And that's a whole nother second hour. <laughs> like, like explaining the dynamic range of a chip. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, how does the uh, optical low-pass filter affect the performance of a camera sensor? It's not necessarily the performance, but what a low-pass filter does 
is it gets rid of moray. So, um, so it, it, it doesn't, there's, there's patterns that we can see. And the two places that we see moray the most are tight patterns on people's uh, clothing. And that can be a texture on someone. So you'll see this kind of um, almost rainbow effect go across these kind of curves on someone's shirt. And that can be from a, a tight pinstripe, um, some check, checkered, uh, usually lots of contrast and, and, a, and, a, and a regular pattern will tend to create a moray pattern um, across it. And so um, you see those on, on certain, um, again, certain textures and, and types of fabric, um, certain types of uh, prints. And then the one that we see the most right now is, is LED walls. So LED walls will pick up that a lot. And without a low-pass filter, you know, um, without the optical low-pass filter, you often see moray going across the, these LED walls in a way that you don't see with, without it um, or with it. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, what Alex said, uh, it, it forms kind of a dithering, a random dithering to break up the regular pattern of, you know, like anything with like an LED wall that has a regular pattern coming in. So it, it'll uh, dither it a little bit so that the uh, the pattern is disturbed enough or defocused enough so that it doesn't create a moray. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, if you want to see a good example of a bad moray, check out CNN. They have a new studio set up with these giant LED screens. And any time to do a close-up shot of one of the talent, especially one to the left or to the right, uh, the moray is just absolutely out of, out of control. I don't understand how they thought that that was okay when they tested it. Like, like you know, you just... Ah, like they and, chose and they chose badly. <laughs> they chose badly, and I guess they're like, okay, well, we spent six million dollars, so now we're gonna now we're gonna eat it for the next two years or something. I don't know, you know. I I all of the networks have done this to some degree, and I just feel like somebody just doesn't care. Like I, I you know, or they're just like they saw it. You know, and this is, and we warn people all the time, like, hey, if you're going to put an LED back there, you're going to have to do a lot of testing, you know, with that LED and make sure that you're not testing with one panel. Like you got to put up a 10 foot by 10 foot square behind someone and show your graphics and see how that's going to look because it's not going to look good. You know, and I think that like ABC is just barely after a decade of looking can't even say it on the air. Um, they're 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 slowly getting some of their sets up to the point where they're not a complete disaster. And I just don't understand how that that they thought that that was okay. You know, like it's and and they see it. I mean, we see it in it has gotten better. Um, but even in some of the you know Sunday night football and and other things like that, we saw you know we'd see these textures and moray and everything else. And and I guess they just feel like the average consumer because people the, here's the problem. They'll say because you know, no one's complaining about it. They're not getting people, you know, they're not getting a bunch of, um, uh, you know, comments about it. Just because people don't complain doesn't mean they don't notice it. <laughs> like, And the worst part is sometimes they don't notice it, but they still subconsciously make decisions about it. Um, and, and so it undermines your standing with your viewers. Um, and it doesn't mean that them, your viewers not, you know, like, and like, again, short depth of field. Most people don't know what short depth of field uh, means, but they're making decisions about the quality of the content based on that depth of field. And 
um, I can tell you when my kids were very small, they would immediately know whether they were watching broadcast or YouTube. Like they just, and I, I asked them immediately, they're like, oh, that's a broadcast channel. Like, and they just skip through it. They would just skip past it. Oh, that's broadcast. That's broadcast. And this is like, we're talking about eight year olds and, and, you know, like, you know, like just knowing exactly what they're looking like, is this, is this uh, native or not native to them? That's how they, you know, I, they didn't say it that way. It's just like, is it our, our, our content or not? I think it's kind of how they refer to it. Yeah. The, and, uh, the, the wide shots are fine. And that's obviously how right. they've tested it. But as but soon as they're going on a one shot, forget it. Well, what I was going to say is that they make they make decisions about that. At eight year old, they didn't know why. They just, but but what it was is depth of field. Like you could see that it was like it was sharp behind them, you know, soft behind them. And they and they made and this is now broadcast has slowly closed that gap. But for a long time, you know, it was very easy, and they didn't know why, but they just knew that it was different, and they knew why it was different. Go ahead, Courtney. Also, we're at the point of transitioning from 1080p to 4K, and that transition has caught a lot of people because they built their set based on 1080p, and now they've got new 4K cameras in with much higher resolution sensors in them. And so the uh, moray is going to be a lot worse with a high-resolution sensor on a 1080p screen. So yeah. that's, I think, where a lot of them are getting caught in that transition. It's, they can't afford to update the sets. I'll, I'll be honest, it's, it's been bad at 1080p. 10e eye for a long time like it, it, the sets you know it, it, it and again the willingness of broadcasters to 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 look so bad in public always amazes me like you know it's like you're cnn anyway next question ike potter from hanover germany um a lens border's image quality might be a lower for example chromatic aberration and vignetting is it worth it to put a full frame lens on an APS-C sensor containing a camera like the zve 10 instead of the same cheaper APS-C lens i buy all my lenses um at full frame just so that i know because lenses are expensive you know you 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 date the you, you date the sensor and you marry the lens <laughs> so so the uh so the um you're you're moving through cameras a lot you may not move through those lenses a lot and so you you want to um uh i i i generally buy all full frame lenses knowing that there's a crop factor to them and knowing that if I ever get, I, what I never want is an APS, a, a pile of APS lenses when I buy my full frame sensor because that means I get to buy them all again and that's something I'm not interested in. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, this is a ZV-E10 with a, uh, a power to zoom 16 and 35G lens and it's basically stretched on an APS-C. So it's actually like a little bit longer lens. And can you control the zoom remotely on that? On that lens. And indeed, and it has the paddle on the top so that I can control it there. Nice. I can do it from the software. I can do it from uh, Zoom, um, not Zoom, uh, the uh, Monitor Plus yeah. software and the remote software from uh, Sony. So, yes, yes and yes. Next question. Next question from Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. What is a global shutter and why is this necessary? Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, we spoke of this a little earlier. Uh, global shutter prevents the uh, jello effect uh, because it captures the entire frame from top to bottom at a single moment in time uh, within, you know, less than a frame of, uh, actually, you know, far less than a frame of time, a 24th of a second or a 30th of a second. So uh, it has a means of freezing basically the data that is stored in those sensors and then it reads it out serially. 
but it freezes it all at the same time so that it's not continuing to capture information uh, as it reads it out. Uh, a non-global shutter uh, will be reading it out, but it'll still be capturing, you know, the, the as you read it out, the pixels at the top of the frame, you're storing those data values, but the pixels at the bottom of the frame are still getting light in. And so uh, things if things move, uh, the image that is on those pixels in the bottom can change uh, from the top of the frame to the bottom of the frame. <clears throat> this causes the uh, irregularities in verticals uh, that you'll see uh, on a uh, non-full frame, I mean non-global shutter camera. So it's best to have global shutter to prevent that, especially if you have anything with a moving camera horizontally. Yeah, I mean, I think that you pretty much, if you're shooting an action film or anything on in a car or anything else that's moving, you kind of, you know, like if, if, you're, if you're thinking about film production or, you know, high-end production, global shutter you have to have. Like you, you can't say, oh, I'm going to shoot that. You know, it's, it, it, you really have to shoot it all in global shutter. Um, people will tell you that you don't, but there's a lot of correction that's required otherwise, and it's never quite right. Next question. David Brady in New York, New York. I modified a Fisher-Price PXL2000 to put out baseband video and sold that camera for about $1,500 to a guy in Japan. Picture quality was abysmal, but it gets a look that you can't reproduce digitally. What other retro cameras are still viable? Mitchell? Yeah, I used to have this old Technicolor um, black and white camera that used actual audio cassettes to record, and it made some amazing pictures in black and white. But... Um, other than that, um, I haven't uh, played with any old stuff yet. Good, Courtney. I used to work with a lot of commercial directors, and we would always shoot in 35-millimeter film. But I had one commercial director that loved to shoot in Super 8. Uh, he'd just do pieces. He'd pull out his little Bullu, uh Super 8 camera and shoot a lot of pieces in Super 8 because he liked that degraded quality. It gave it a edge, you know, which is what all the commercial producers were looking for, something of an edge so that all their commercials don't look the same. Probably the same reason that this guy is going for the Fisher Price. He needs to have something that looks different. These days, most editorial packages have plugins that can make it look like bad VHS, or you know, that will degrade your you know super high resolution you know IMAX imagery to make it look like it came off of a Fisher Price camera. I'm trying to remember who I used to have. Um, it's just. Um, uh, I can't, who's the, who made the? There was a company that makes the little lenses for your camera. And I, you know, they have the, they have the screws on the corners and you can move them back and forth. And I used to use them. I used to have a lot of fun with them. And lens I just, baby. Yeah. Lens baby. lens baby. Yeah. Yeah. Lens baby had these little, you know, it's like a little, like, you know, you could twist it and bend it. And what it would do is it'd take it's the plane that's in, it's a bellows yeah. lens, like a little bellows lens for it. And, 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 um, uh, I think it's Notaflex, Notaflex, um, will also, I mean, they make big bellows. I have this, I, I, I do want to get a bellows for a Blackmagic camera just for, they have them, you know, Super 35, or I mean, they have thir, um, Canon mount bellows. Um, and I think it's Notaflex that makes them. And I'm, I'm, I don't know why, but the idea of shooting, you know, kind of tilt lens of ants or something in 12K, it's absurd. And I want to do it. The uh, yeah, and we'll talk about lenses someday. But the, uh, but I think it's more of a lens thing than a camera thing at this point, as far as what might be worth taking video with, at least. Uh, next question. 
Bob Collins in Kansas City, Missouri. Is there any sensor difference for a high-speed camera versus a normal speed, or is the difference somewhere else in the camera system? Mitchell? Um, I love Phantom. I think it's the coolest thing in the world to shoot that super high speed. And there's a huge difference in everything, including you got to flood a whole, whole lot more light on the subject to be able to shoot high speed. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's something different. I mean, there, there's probably something different, but the, the big thing is how... how um, it's the refresh. The the sensors are different because <laughs> they have to be able to accept a super high. They have to be able to accept voltage and discharge voltage at a very high rate. The bigger problem is dealing with the um, throughput. So it's it's generating an enormous amount of data all at one time. And so it's the flash memory. I know when the Phantoms first came out, they're 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 much better now. But when they first came out, they'd have they have these cards in them, the very first Phantom, and it would have all these cards, and it would just charge all the cards. You could only get a couple seconds worth of footage because that's what they could fill, and then it would take a while. Then you go, you go, for, you wait for a little while for the car, for them to slowly push that back out through the pipeline. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, he's right. He, the uh, speed at which you could read the data out uh, is a, is a problem, and the and the speed at which the photo sensor can capture has to be able to capture in a very short period of time to capture a very high speed. And what a lot of them would do is uh, to shoot a super high, the higher the frame rate, uh, the lower the resolution. So it would uh, divide up that sensor into sub uh, sub areas so that we would have, you know, ten, well, four frames, you know, four or five frames across and five frames down of a full, you know, full res sensor. So you would lower your resolution to get the higher frame rate. And then then the electronics could read out that frame as if it were just a single frame of full frame, but it's actually getting uh, 25 frames at one time instead of just one. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, a camera person covering a SpaceX launch mentioned the intense light overloaded the camera's sensor. How might that overload affect the image and what would you do to mitigate it? Uh, typically, I mean, again, the problem you have there is, of course, your shutter speed can only get to be so, you know, especially if you're shooting film. So generally, unless you're turning your shutter up way past the normal, you your shutter is usually at what we call 180 degrees or it's basically, it's open half the time that the, so if you've got a, if you're shooting one six, uh, 60 frames a second, your shutter is at one twenty. At one twenty, um, you know, and so so, and you're kind of pegged there. Otherwise, it, it starts to look very stuttery because the motion blur doesn't match the frame rate, or what we expect from that frame rate. The so the the way we handle that is typically ND filters. The challenge you get into with ND is so these are neutral density filters, and so the way we are able to open that open our aperture back up or be able to get more get something more light in like for instance for a, a, a filter for the sun is all is almost opaque like it's nearly opaque you can put it on your camera and you'll be able to see the sunspots and the sun itself and everything else um, but you can see that because the because we put this um, this filter on the front that cuts out almost all of it and ND filters you can have um, you know various numbers of stops of ND filters the challenge you get into with this is that you have a launch and you need an ND filter at one level uh, for a moment, you know, so it's it's got to be, it's darker and then suddenly there's a bright light and you have to close that ND filter down. Um, there's a couple different ways of doing that. Uh, one way to do that is to 
uh, have a variable ND filter that you can open open up. You can swing it and and open that up. I don't think that the image quality is as high um, with that, but it's but you can get a variable ND filter there. Um, and then the other and then cameras have their own NDs built into them. So some cameras will have them, so you can swing them there, and it can be a combination of the two. You know, so that's the other thing. And if you and if you get those ND filters in, so that you're all you know, the other thing you can do is get the ND filters in, and then use your your f-stop. So that the f-stop is kind of like you can scale it all back, so that so that you know you still can close down on the f-stop when you need to. So if you if you have the ND dark enough that you're wide open at the very beginning, you may be between switching your ND filters and clo- and opening up your f-stop or closing your f-stop. You can um, and, and making that that aperture smaller. All of those things will, can allow you to adjust during during something that's changing a lot. Yeah, good, Courtney. Yeah, and there's also, uh, yeah, you don't want to set it necessarily on automatic uh, exposure because that's going to bite you. You know, if you have a good exposure, you know, it's let's say it's dawn and you get a nice picture of the rocket sitting on the launch pad. And then as soon as it goes up, you know, it becomes so bright, the camera stops down to the point that you just see the image of the flame properly exposed, but everything else goes dark. Uh, so you have to choose something in between there. And a lot of times, uh, I do like I do in sound. If you have a, a super loud sound that you're trying to record, and there's dialogue on either side of it, let's say, you can't, you know, you can't mix down the sound levels so that you record the gunshots properly without them ex- going over, uh, and still record the dialogue. So usually, we'll just let the gunshots go over, uh, and you'll use some type of brick wall limiter to prevent that from going over 100%, and you can do the same thing in video as a brick wall limiter, prevent it going, that'll top it off at 100%, and you'll just let the flame burn out. You won't see a lot of detail in it, but at least you'll still be able to see the rocket as it goes up. So um, that's uh, one method of handling it, and, and or it can be a careful balance. The problem with rocket launches is if it's your first one, you don't know, you know, you only get one chance at it. <laughs> and uh, so guessing whether the right amount of ND to use and still get a usable image without it going over, you know, can be very tricky. It takes experience and doing it more than once or maybe multiple cameras to get it correct the first and only time. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Another example of that is shooting fireworks. It's pretty tricky. And uh, I usually open the lens all the way up, put a um, uh, ND filter on it, and it uh, seems to work okay. But uh, the mechanical NDs are just that. On most of the high-end Sony cameras, there's literally a wheel that engages and sometimes sticks and can be a problem for you. Um, it, it, it can be an issue. It can certainly be an issue finding a common place in between. But like Courtney points out, uh, going for auto iris is a mistake. Next question. Next question from Samuel Nordvik in Norway. How do anti-aliasing filters on camera sensors work? Um, typically, uh, traditional anti-aliasing is a process of oversampling the image. So you're getting more, this gets back into what I was talking about before. You get more pixels and then you um, scale it down. And as you scale it down, as it's combining those pixels, it starts to, what aliasing is coming from is high contrast areas where you see a stair stepping, where you just, it's, it is a, um, you know, the problem you get into is that, you know, it, it just sees a pixel, you know, these, it's, it's at the resolution of the sensor. What anti-aliasing done is it's going to, you know, if you have these here, it's going to have, um, it's going to start having the pixels next to it have just a little bit of that, you know, and that happens because it's getting 
blended together. I think the technical term is mushed, mushed together. You're mushing the pixels together and, and it, <laughs> it produces a semi-transparent appearance or a, uh, you know, a pixels that are next to the high contrast pixels that are lower contrast and a mix between the background and the foreground. And that creates what we tend to refer to as anti-aliasing. And then the most typical way to do that is, especially if you have a, if you have a still sensor that's capable of you know, for 8K, you know, images or, or 6K images or whatever, and you go and it goes down to your 4K or whatever, the anti-aliasing is oftentimes being created by grabbing all the pixels on that sensor and then blending them together a little bit to, to get that edge. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, a lot of this is not necessarily done in the camera. It's done in, in uh, the chipset, the Digic chipset or whatever is the camera's uh, microcontroller that is processing that image after it's captured. Uh, so it's not a physical filter, but it's uh, one that looks for high contrast between a bright white and a bright dark edge. And because the uh, there are discrete locations for each pixel, those are little squares next to each other, and let's say they can't uh, handle, it's going to look stair-steppy since you're going to see, see every, uh, every little square block going down a diagonal. What it does is it will create new pixels that are halfway between the bright pixel and the dark pixel that's next to it. And it'll put that block in there that a gray pixel, let's say, will, it'll put a gray pixel in there. And it, it diffuses the edge and it fools your eye into thinking it's a smooth edge as opposed to a stair-steppy edge by that half-dark pixel that's been put uh, you know, adjacent to every uh, transition between a bright pixel and a dark pixel. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, uh, Courtney, in the old days, wasn't that the detail control that would uh, interfere with that or help with that? Because all cameras were well, basically Well, detail or, or image enhancement does the opposite of that, which is it increases the contrast at edges. And so that'll give you a sharper edge, but it'll increase the aliasing problem too. Yeah, because it, 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 what, what, um, uh, what you get with... Um, uh, sharpening. So when you when you're adding detail, you're sh it's just sharpening, and that sharpening is saying I have a um, you know I have a light a light foreground, and then I have a you know a darker background here, and what it'll do is it it does a high pass filter, um, and so it, it it will if you do a high pass filter in Photoshop, you can actually you can actually reproduce this. This is a, kind of a fun little. I used to do this in one of my classes. We would take an image and do a high pass, there's a hidden in the Photoshop calculations, this isn't, because high pass is probably one of the oldest ones ever made. Um, there's a high pass filter, you cr duplicate your layer, do a high pass filter, and set that to, I believe it's uh, overlay. And you'll see it, um, the gray, what's pure gray will not do anything to the image, but the image will look sharper. And the reason is, is that is that you you are making the brighter areas a little brighter and the darker areas a little darker, and that creates the along any area of contrast, and that's going to what that's what that's how sharpening works. That's how your detail works, and it's a relatively simple math operation which allows it to be done in a camera. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. I know I'm a little off t su subject, but you just brought it up in Photoshop. How do they get the Hollywood uh, uh, hero shots that look a little bit posterized? Almost as if they're a print piece as, a, as opposed to a photo. I don't, you'd have to Reduce show me. the okay, color so depth. Somebody's, what's that, color depth? 
Yeah, you reduce like the color depth from, from you go to like to four bit four bit uh, color depth on each color, and that'll give you the posterization, you know, so that you'll have hard lines of demarcation between one color and the next one brightness for blue and the next brightness for blue. You know, there's less difference if you have 256 different levels for blue in an eight bit, and you have you know four times that with ten bit, et cetera, et cetera. So if you go down to seven bit or four bit, you know, you'll have stair stepping and you'll get posterization. Next question. Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. Some budget micro four thirds cameras have reduced autofocus performance running at 4K versus 1080p. Is this a processor performance limitation or something else related to the sensor? It's a processor performance. It's it's got uh, the 4K is taking more processing power, and it may not be able to, you know, especially in a lower cost one. It's just not going to have the chips to make do to look at the entire image and process that. I do think the next generation, if we look at uh, DJI's um, 4D camera, that's the future, which is that we're going to start seeing lidar sensors being added to these cameras. Um, they become commoditized with the phones and everything else. I think the problem right now is that Apple buys so many of them. That no one else can get their can edge their way in, but but the um, but the lidar I think is going to be the next um, uh, generation of figuring out what the what that focus looks like. Next question, Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, is thirty six by twenty four millimeters the largest camera sensor commonly used full frame, and how does four thirds compare? There are medium format digital cameras that shoot at 100 megapixels. I don't think that they shoot video. I think it's a lot of data. But these are still cameras. Um, and, um, you know, I think Phase One makes them. Um, uh, who, there's other, there's, I mean, there's a more traditional company. Fuji, I think, makes, makes, makes them as well. Um, but these are incredibly large. I mean, these are medium format. So, I, you know, they're this big <laughs> so and they uh and and they are very very high resolution they're used for product shots modeling um that type of thing and, and they're it's amazing uh, go ahead courtney yeah, you can get digital backs for Hasselblad cameras, some of the old medium format cameras with a digital back, which have very large sensors. Hasselblad was what i was trying to my, i was yeah, trying to right. brain yes yeah. hustle brain hustle brain i had hustle brain yeah exactly which is <laughs> which, that's, which is better than having Hasselhoff. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado. I've got two old Kodak digital cameras. Could I take a filter out and have an infrared stereo camera? Um, so the only thing you'd have is you might be able to take stills that way. Um, the the challenge that you get into is the... Um, really, I'm really fascinated by the idea of a stereo infrared camera. Yeah, yeah, you could you could do that, um, and uh, the the stills will work. If anything's moving, the real problem is is that you're not going to be able to genlock them. You need to genlock the two cameras so that they're firing the, the sensors at the, exactly the same si time. Otherwise, um, if th anything's moving, so you could do you know landscape shots and stuff like that. But if anything's moving, it'll be in two different places on either, and that'll make your eyes cross. You know, so so that your eyes will get very confused if it sees just something slightly off there. So you need to genlock is important between cameras if you really want to have a true three D camera. I have never thought of an infrared stereo camera, and now I am obsessed. In moments, in less than a minute, I'm obsessed with the idea of. All right, more more about that later. Um, but you could do that. There's other ways to do that as well. I mean, you could use GoPros. You know, go. There's a company. 
there's a there's a company uh, that um, I just heard somebody yell on the air. <laughs> so anyway, so anyway, so uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess your your mute doesn't mute all the way. So if you yell, then sorry, uh, that's okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, uh, GoPro. There's a company that takes GoPros and remove removes that filter as well. Um, so you, and the GoPros are a little easier to to put next to each other for stereo. We've done that in the past, but I'm. Uh, Huh. So obsessed with that now. That that seems like it would be so cool to see the world in not only in infrared, but stereo infrared. Hey, good, Courtney. Yeah, you could just take the wise cameras, which are, are have uh, they're sensitive to infrared as well as regular light. They don't have the infrared filters in them because they have night mode, which puts them in infrared mode. So you just put two of them next to each other to get stereo, Alex. You genlock. Next, next question. Eduardo Augustine from Panama City, Panama. What is the best source to learn all the ins and outs of camera handling, ISO, f-stops, exposure, etc.? Mitchell. I love Caleb over at DSLR Shooter. He has a great way about him. And uh, I was talking to Chris Fritchie uh, yesterday. He has uh, two new FX30s, and there's a uh, course for like 100 bucks where he takes you through the whole thing. He breaks it all down. So uh, not only is it specific to camera jargon, but it's specific to that camera. And, and who is who's, who's that again? Caleb at DSLR Shooters. Nice. Uh, next question. Next question coming in from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. Is this an option for any of the panelists? A Photon camera app lets you shoot photos to external drives with an iPhone 15 Pro. It could be, um, you know, the, I think that, I guess photos, I've, I've never needed to, I don't know why I would shoot photos to an external drive. Uh, shooting video to an external drive on a new iPhone is great, um, and I've done that already. Uh, I'm not sure why I would shoot, again, I'm not sure why I would shoot photos um, that way, so, because uh, they don't take up that much storage, so, sure. I mean, you could do it, but I just don't know why. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, no, because I don't have an iPhone 15. But there are a lot of photographers that have Wi-Fi cards in their cameras for for DSLRs because as they're shooting, the the stuff, the pictures that are in the camera are being transmitted to a uh, a laptop nearby, and they're being put up on a big screen for all the agency to look at. Uh, so look at each still, and they're evaluating them as they're being shot. So it's in a situation like that where you want to have multiple people evaluating what you're shooting. You know, it might be handy. Next question. Next one in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. How do you do camera sensor cleaning? Amazon sells kits that do this. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, be very, very careful because you can really mess things up on your camera by doing it. But generally a little bit of a puffer, carefully applied, will uh, do the job for you. But yeah, there are kits. You can get them. Uh, unless you do it re regularly, I would highly recommend getting somebody who does this professionally to clean your sensor out um it is it is a really great way to they're also insured so if they scratch your sensor <laughs> they'll fix it um the uh but it is it's it's kind of a big deal um yeah it's a, it's a uh there's a procedure to do it you need to first of course blow everything off of it with a puffer carefully you don't want to scratch anything um then oftentimes they do an a kind of a um an anti-static process you know pass to pull things off and then 
and then you're putting a, 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 um, a solution on it and kind of squeegeeing across it. Um, and I have done it once to an old camera and I, it made me so uncomfortable. I was like, I'm not going to do that again. I, yeah, it worked. But I was, and I know some people do it all the time. Uh, if you want to know how dirty your sensor is, what you want to do is, is take your camera and close it down to one, you know, uh, F16 or F22, light it up enough and point it at a white um, card, you know, white um, foam core and uh, light it up so that the, the foam core is well exposed and you'll see how dirty your sensor is. It's probably a lot dirtier than you think. When you're shooting short depth of field, you won't see it. It's only when you start closing it down that you'll start, suddenly see everything on the sensor. So um, it it is something you have to think about. Um, I do, the, the thing that I do the most is I, uh, anybody who's worked with me knows that I'm, you know, since I usually own the cameras and the lenses, I'm super sensitive about how long the camera uh, body is left open. People who work in film and people who work in production a lot of times will just set that camera down and they'll just let it sit there while they're figuring something out. I the maximum time that it takes me to put a lens on is about ten seconds. And I and I sit there and I set the lens down, I loosen the cap, I set the camera down, I loosen the cap, I pull both caps off and I put it together. <laughs> like, you know, and I I want that time to be I don't and also don't want the the sensor to be sitting up. So I want the camera to be usually mounted somewhere so I can mount it. Setting the camera on its back with the sensor up is a great way to attract more um, uh, stuff. You know, so that's the those are things that they kind of think about. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, don't let the camera system with hay fever change the lenses for you. The other thing is (laughs) the uh, the Canons have something called image uh, sensor cleaning mode when you go to shut it down and turn it back on again. So I'm not not sure how they work, whether they just vibrate the sensor a little bit to shake any dust off. I actually think that they they build up a static charge and release it, and it it pops everything off of it. It's it's like an ionizer or something that changes the static charge. I think it's actually laser beams, the freaking laser beams. So. It's lasers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Hey, thanks. Thanks so much to the panelists uh, for both the first hour and the second hour for getting us through that. Um, and um, thank you uh, to the uh, to all the to all the um, our producers asking lots of great questions. This was definitely we had a little change at the very beginning, and so we needed a little more time. And the producers came up right under us and asked a lot of great questions, and we even went over a little bit. And because we went over, we want to thank also the incredible production team who put up with us going a little over. Um, thank you for um, for making that actually happen, and uh, for making all of these happen. There's the development, there's the planning, there's the production. Uh, all of those things are happening, um, uh, and we really appreciate all of your contribution. Uh, we traveled, wait for it, um, we traveled 92,000 miles. It's 149,000 kilometers answering all these questions in the Tlaloc Traversal, and uh, that is 735 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. Really sorry about that uh, shout coming through. It said full mute, not minus forty. It said full mute. So I got to call Gordon about that. No, no. They, a lot of times those mutes don't don't go all the way. They go to like negative sixty. So if you yell loud enough, you'll still hear it at negative thirty or negative forty because it's a negative sixty. Um, uh, Apparently, drop. yelling "I'm on the air" to somebody ringing my doorbell is exceeds that. You know, I, yeah. not a mute. You need a zing. It's just an attenuator. It's a ring with a taser. It literally shocked me when you said, I heard that. I went, what? Yeah, both, both of us were like, where did that come from? Yeah, like I could see Courtney looking around going, what? So, yeah. So, yeah. Go. Yeah. Like, what happened to that? Who now I know. Yep. So, yeah. 
Adios.